Hey everybody, long time no listen. It's been quite a while since we've gotten together to record an episode and we had a big epic episode planned for you with a special guest and two really interesting films and we're going to be four of us and now there's only two of us which kind of sounds like it's some tv movie mystery but um the whole reason was that for some reason even though most of us are still stuck at home we are busier than ever and so our special guest who was joseph henson from the steer continues had to politely decline um this particular episode he will be here though eventually hopefully at the next episode we'll see um when he can fit us in but his schedule just got out of hand and our dear intermittent host nate couldn't make it as well because um life just gets in the way sometimes but we didn't want to postpone this any longer because i've already put this off from i think last month or maybe even the month before Uh dan and i were talking before the recording we can't even really remember the last (laughs) recording we did but we we think it was this house possessed which would have put us in february because i put that up to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the film which was february 6th so that was quite a while ago um and since then i think we've all been going 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 so that's my intro it's not that fascinating but we will have um but I think it's going to be a pretty interesting show. So what we decided to do when um, Joe was going to join us. So what I like to do is when I have a guest, I like to try to cater the films to the guest and pick things that I think that they'll enjoy. Um, I'm I'm not sure if they will or not. I You know, half the time they haven't seen the film before. But um, I had picked two movies that starred both Tammy Lauren and Shawnee Smith because many of you know that they starred in the cult classic 1988 made-for-TV movie I Saw What You Did, which is a remake of the William Castle film. Um, But they also made a TV movie together in 1985 called Crime of Innocence. Um, And I thought, oh, that'll be fun. Let's cover those two films together. And um, and I was pretty sure that Joe had seen I Saw What You Did and was a fan of it. And I thought it would be fun. And we've been wanting to cover that movie anyway. So we're going to do them, um, Dan and I. And so let me just start by introducing Dan. Hey, what's up? Not much. I I am ready to go. I uh, before the cancellation of this the first time I had watched the movies uh, several times and took lots of notes. Uh, since then, I have f- forgotten about the movies and lost those notes, but I've watched it again, and I'm ready to go, ready and raring. Yeah, that's what happens when you like are pretty sure you're going to record something, and then you put it off, mm-hmm. and and then you're like, what happened in that movie? And I will tell you, though, just a caveat about Crime of Innocence, which is the first one we're going to talk about. So when I assigned this movie, my memory of it was that it was in the entire film, which she's not. So it's really kind of a Shawnee Smith yes. episode because she stars in both, and Tammy Lauren only kind of half stars in the first film. And that surprised me because my memory of it was really the more gritty stuff that happens at the beginning. Um, and so, so anyway, so I guess we could call this the Shawnee Smith half Tammy Lauren episode, if that's catchy. That, that works catchy? for me. I think that's catchy enough. All right, that's catchy enough. I'll come up with something more pithy, hopefully, <laughs> by the end of this. But at any rate, so uh, let's just get started. Uh, and I'm going to give you just a little bit of background on Tammy Lauren and Shawnee Smith, who are two really well-known actresses, two extremely talented actresses, and two actresses that maybe don't get enough credit for how good they are. I remember when we did um, The Face of Evil, that Tracy Gold movie that Shawnee Smith oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. stars in. What a great performance that was uh, from Shawnee Smith, because that was a character that was really repressed and, and introverted, and she had to come out to defend her dad, and there's a 
a lot of nuance to that performance that I loved. And I think that she's a terrific actress. She has a really wide range. Tim Warren also is a fantastic actress, a child actress, somebody who has been around for my entire life. I think we're roughly the same age. And I can't think of a time when I watched TV and she wasn't on it um, well into the 90s, you know. Um, and of course, she starred Wishmaster, which is fantastic. But and it was great to see these two girls together because Tammy Lauren was already kind of a seasoned actress and Shawnee Smith was really at the beginning of her career. And they're terrific together. Um, and I'm not surprised that they ended up in two films together because of their chemistry. But, you know, as I said, Tammy Lauren is a very well-recognized child actress. She actually got her start by performing in a production of The Music Man somewhere in Los Angeles. She was about eight years old. Um, and she said she sort of fell into acting. It wasn't actually like anything super passionate about it at eight. But it turns out her stepfather uh, is a director um, named Charles Jarrett, who directed a bunch of TV movies, including Lady Boss and Stranger in the Mirror. And her mother was a talent scout. So maybe it doesn't seem that unusual that she would fall into her family's line of work. Um, and so anyway, that production led to on-screen work. Um, and her first role on TV was on an episode of Fantasy Island. Um, she was on stuff like Mork and Mindy. Uh, but I think I remember her best as the quote-unquote baby prostitute on an episode of Facts of Life. Do you remember that episode, Dan? No, I don't. I, I feel like the Facts of Life probably okay. had eight or nine episodes like that. Yeah, they well, they had one very special baby prostitute episode. So okay. what happens is... All the girls are going to New York except for Tootie because she's too young and they're going to like go see a Broadway play. And so Tootie decides she's going to go into the city herself. You know, they live in Peekskill, New York, which is like upstate New York. And so she takes the train, but everything gets all hinky because she doesn't really know where she's going. She ends up in this really, really bad part of New York City in the early to mid 80s, which is amazing because all of New York was really bad. And it was fabulous and she ends up at this diner but for some reason I think she gets her wallet stolen or she loses her money or she forgets her money or something and Tammy Lauren in this really great little wrap fur coat and like a mini skirt offers to buy her her dinner and they start talking and Tammy Lauren's pimp is there and he's like you got to talk to Dean to become a prostitute so the episode is Tammy Lauren's character trying to like make prostitution alluring for Tootie <laughs> wow and then at the end of the episode, Tootie realizes that maybe it's okay not to grow up so fast. I think mm. it's the point of that episode. So, and it's really good. I never forgot it. I never forgot it. <laughs> um, so, um, and that's always what I'll remember Tammy Lauren best for. But she was in The Stepford Children. She oh, was in a movie we covered uh, recently called The People Across the Lake with Valerie Harper. I mean, she just was in everything, and she's fabulous. Um, as an adult, she worked in a wide range of projects, which include Wishmaster. Uh, she was on a TV series called Homefront, which I know she was really fond of. And she also starred on Martial Law, um, which was that show with Sammo Hung from the early 90s. Oh, and yeah. She, wow. Oh, wow. I think, yeah. Yeah, remember? Oh, she's yeah, it's a fun show. Yeah, because she was a black belt, I think. Um, wow. So her first TV movie was the kid. I know she does everything. Uh, her first <laughs> TV movie was The Kid with the Broken Halo, which starred Gary Coleman and Robert Yeah. Hill. Now, she reunited. Yeah, she reunited with Gary Coleman in the Golden Chalice TV movie, Playing with Fire, where Gary Coleman plays an arsonist. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't, but it sounds hilarious. It sounds amazing, and it's got, like, Cicely Tyson in it or something what? like that. And, like, it's got this amazing cast. And it came out in 1985, which was the same year she made Crime of Innocence. And I've never seen it. I've only seen the ad, which is on YouTube for it, and I've seen the TV Guide ad, and it looks amazing. Um, so we may do a Gary Coleman double if I ever yes. come across that movie. Um, yeah, I think that would be good. Plus, I love The Kid with the Broken Halo. And I also love, there's one, I think, called The Kid with the 200 IQ, which might also have Robert oh, yes. Q mm -hmm. in it. That's a really good. I think so, He yeah. made a really good TV movie. And so anyway, and then as an adult, Tammy also used to teach acting to teenage runaways in Los Angeles. 
and her brother was a Ringling Brothers circus clown. So there's a lot of uh, performers in her family. Um, Shawnee Smith, uh, at this stage in her career, around 1985, she was just really getting started. Um, I think her IMDb credits might start around 82, I think. Um, anyway, uh, she had an article in a local paper in South Carolina. I believe she came from Orangeburg. Her grandparents lived there, so they would report on her periodically. In one article, they mentioned that she uh, used to bring her grandmother to the set, mm. and um, and her grandmother would hang out with everybody in the cast and crew. And her grandmother said that Shawnee loved the cast parties, and um, you can take that as you will. Uh, <laughs> and I guess she's best known to us for the Blob remake. Oh, um, yeah. Saw movies. Yeah, she's so good in the blob remake. Um, oh, I just watched that again recently for, yeah, for the first time in ages. So good. Yeah, it's it's good. It's so good. Um, I never get tired of it. It's like every couple of years I have to pull out my DVD and watch it. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I said, she was in the Saw films. I think she plays a character named Amanda, which may or may not be based on me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's probably not, but you never know, right? I did see Saw 2. And um, from what I know of you, yeah, why not? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And uh, she was also uh, one of the co-stars of Becker. She's so good on oh, Becker. Becker. Yeah, she's um, very funny. Yeah. It's a great show. Yeah. She's, she had a really versatile career. She has a really versatile career. She's really great in everything. Um, her first TV movie was also 1985, before Crime of Innocence. It was called Not My Kid. Um, and she's actually a musician as well. She was part of uh, rock bands named Fidola Ho and something called Smith & Pyle. And um, she said in an interview that she's actually not a fan of horror, and even her own horror films scare her. So she's a lightweight. She's a lightweight. I don't know what she thinks of <laughs> I Saw What You Did, but that's not that's a good review. I wouldn't say it's particularly scary, though. She could probably watch that one okay. And so these are just two actresses who were up and coming in this era who have a lot of chemistry together and who separately both had really interesting, fabulous careers, too, and it, who I also think represent the best of the 80s of the TV movie. I think they both were really good in um, these sort of early roles. And so this should be a fun episode. And we're going to go ahead and start with the lesser known of the two movies, which is Crime of Innocence, uh, which came out in 1985. And Dan is going to give us a breakdown on that. So why don't you get started, Dan? Uh, this is about, and, and I, I, I do have the names written here, but if I get one wrong, please, Amanda, yell out. Um, but Shawnee Smith plays uh, uh, Jody, and Tammy Lauren plays Renee. I believe, I believe so. Um, and if I forget their names, I'll just, uh, their characters' names, I'll call them by their first names. But, uh, uh Jody, uh, Shawnee Smith's character is a, um, is, they're both in high school, they're both around 15, and, and Jody is sort of a good girl, she has an A average, she never uh, misses class, she's on the track team, they're going to nationals, it's awesome. Uh, Renee, or, uh, you know, her, her friend, is, skips a lot of classes, doesn't do as well, and is a bit more of a, 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 a ne'er-do-well, a bit of a flibberty gibbet, and in the beginning of the movie, oh, oh, you, the, the way the movie begins is you see Jody with her parents uh, who run a dry cleaning place and everything's very sweet and very wonderful, which of course means that everything's going to get horrible in about 15 to 20 minutes, which is exactly what happens. And uh, Jody is leaving school one day and a friend pulls up driving her boyfriend's car. Um, I'll see you tomorrow, Caleb. Hi. Bye. Renee, what are you doing driving Dave's car for his date? Kevin. He decided that instead of going to the Mad Dog concert, he wanted to go to the drag races down in Riverbend. So how'd you get his car? 
I took his keys and said I wouldn't go. That's how. When I wouldn't give it back, he decided he was going to hitch there. What are you doing? Well, if he got dropped off, he'd be twitching to come up behind him to pick him up in his own car. Renee, you don't even have a driver's license. What? I am a great driver. I can't do this. I've got to get home. What is there to do at home? You're always going home. Homework. Sign it on. Oh, right. Right. Tony, I'm moving to Minneapolis next week. If I don't get back together with Dave before then, I never will. And I'll have no one to leave behind. Come on. Have a heart. Come on, let's go for a drive. So they go for a drive. You know, it's right after school. It's 3, 3.30, whenever it is, maybe a little later. But suddenly what happens is they wind up being out for a very, very long time. I myself was a little confused as to how long they were actually out. They were out for a long time, so much so that uh, Jody's um, uh, mom and dad, I believe it's Rose and Frank, go to the police. Mr. Haywood, ma'am, sorry to make you come down here at such a late hour, but like I said on the phone, the only way we can look for runaways is the parent sign and an unruly warrant. Our daughter isn't a runaway. She hasn't any reason. We're real worried, officer. We checked the hospitals. She's five foot two, brown hair, brown eyes. Did you sign on the bottom by the X? Just one of you needs to sign. Officer, it says here that we declare our child to be unruly and beyond our control. Jody is an all-A student. And we want to bring her home for you, Ms. Hayward, but like I said, she's underage, so technically, we have to classify her as a runaway. Standard procedure, nothing to worry about. Well, yep, she's a runaway. Sign this piece of paper, and this signs over all your responsibility for her to us and to Judge Sullivan, or as I call him, Judge Andy Griffith. And they do that, not quite realizing what they're getting into. They get home a little bit later, and it is dark out. It's, it's, it's late in the evening, or late in the night. And um, uh, Jody is there, and she apologizes. And they're like, okay, why don't you call? I did call an hour ago, but they were at the police station. Oh, so, uh, whatever. We'll call the cops and tell them to call it off. Um, whoever it is, whichever one of the parents it is who calls the cops, come back a minute later and says, oh, they want to um, see us in juvenile court tomorrow. Huh? Why? So they go to juvenile court the next day, her and her and Renee, um, or Tammy, um, and uh, they meet Judge Sullivan, played by Andy Griffith, and he's a very sort of, yeah, old Southern judge who believes that he knows about parenting and how to control kids better than anyone else. The Millborough County Juvenile Court is now in session. Honorable Judge Julius Sullivan on the bench. No smoking in the courtroom. Please eat Except for you girls, I want you standing right there. Up straight. These are closed proceedings. No one outside this room will know what goes on. That's because you girls are underage. Parents, I'm required by law to tell you that you're entitled to a lawyer. But having one won't matter in regards to my decision on this, so if you want to spend the money, that's up to you. Either of you want a lawyer for this? No, sir. I guess not, Your Honor. All right. Emily, does the probation department have a report on these girls? Yes, Your Honor. Renee Peterson has missed a total of 11 days of school and has a C-minus average. Jody Hayward's missed only today. She has an A-minus average. I have a rule about truancy. Miss a day of school, spend a day in jail. It's very simple. So I might have additional charges to file here. 
Now, about this joyride you took in a stolen car. <laughs> it was my boyfriend's car. You shut your mouth till I tell you to open it. Boyfriend, how old is this boyfriend? 23. He's 23, you're 16. Mother, you approve of that? No, sir, Your Honor, I don't. I just... Don't tell me, tell your girl. Sir, I try, but she don't listen. Then I'll make it crystal clear. From now on, you're not allowed to date that man. You're not allowed to see him or communicate with him in any way. There's no law that says I can't date him. I'm the law. You'd better learn respect for it. Renee, Your Honor, uh, it don't matter. We're leaving town next week. Respect for the law matters, regardless of where you are. Maybe jail will teach her that lesson. You can't put me in jail. I can put you in jail for anything I decide to. You want to go right now? Now, what about you? What have you got to say for yourself? It was wrong what I did. Get I your arms down to your sides and speak up so you're on the record. <clears throat> what I did was wrong. I'm sorry. I won't ever do it. I don't think you're sorry at all. But I am sorry. I really am. I don't hear remorse in your voice. I don't see tears welling up in your eyes and running down your cheeks. All right. I gave you your chance. I'm going to... Because these girls were runaways, and we have no assurance they won't abscond from the jurisdiction of this court between now and Monday morning with their disposition hearing, I'm ordering that they be detained in the Millbury County Jail till that time. I know what's best for girls like these. I told you what I intend to do, and I'm doing it. Jail. Jail is awful. The next day, <laughs> as as you might as you might imagine, um, uh, and the next day when um, uh, Renee is going a bit, um, uh, 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 she's going a bit crazy, and Jody is trying to keep her calm. There's there's a moment where they, I, th- I think there's like a cockroach runs by, and they uh, yeah. they scream and then they laugh. The, right at the moment, the Judge Sullivan shows up and says, "I'm like, oh, you girls are having so much fun in prison. I'll leave you in for another day." And he goes. Yeah, <laughs> and he leaves. And the thing about it is that the parents aren't allowed to call and ask what what's going on or when they're coming home, and no one will call them to tell them how everything's going. So things get a little dark in a moment when they meet um, Corey. Corey is a deputy, and he's a bit hunky, and he kind of knows the girls, and they kind of know who he is. And after a few minutes. Or, well, a few minutes of screen time. Corey begins to take a bit of a liking to Jody, and um, this is where it goes south. He puts um, uh, Jody's friend in a sort of a cell where you can't hear her. It's soundproof cell, and takes Jody into a back room and rapes her. Later, I don't know if it's the next day or very soon after that, the judge lets them out. But he lets them out with, you've got a curfew, you come home, you never skip school, you study, you get good grades, this, that, and the other. He basically says, you know, Jody, you're no longer on the track team, and if you break any of these rules, you're going back to jail. And Jody is is, is miserable because of what happened. She hasn't told anyone, but she's you could tell she's miserable. Um, her friend uh, is is actually the lucky one in the movie because after this scene, she vanishes from the movie. So I guess yeah. you know that's the best way to um that's the best way to handle Judge Sullivan leave the movie early and the rest of the movie is about the um, Jody trying to cope with um, what happened to her uh, returning to school people are starting to sort of talk she's um, the uh, she's she obviously is not detracting anymore she's starting to um, uh, mentally physically emotionally she's starting to just sort of 
not not lose it per se, but just kind of retreat back into herself. And her mom can't yeah. quite figure out what's going on, and her dad's kind of like, "Come on, you know, get get with it." Well, then they Walk learn. Up, yeah, ex- exactly. And eventually, the judge comes calls them in and says, "We've been informed that one of my deputies committed sexual battery against your daughter." And they're like, "What the?" F- what are you what are you saying and um and 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 um and the mom is is wrecked and jody is like yeah yeah it happened and the dad we can talk about the dad's response what happens is they end up calling in a lawyer i believe uh speck is it speck speck or speck um is his name i think yes yes and he is going to they they basically they sue judge sullivan and you learn that Sullivan has been in, has been a judge in this county or wherever they are. Uh, it was made in Santa Barbara, I think. So this doesn't look yeah. like Santa Barbara to me, though. Um, I've always the times I've been in Santa Barbara, it's been lovely. This doesn't seem like a lovely place. Um, uh, but they they're going to sue the judge, and the judge has been doing this for like twenty years, putting all kinds of kids, all sorts of ages, from like eleven up, into jail, and. Um, a lot of it doesn't sound very good, and uh, yeah, and and we the 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 sort of climax of the film is a sort of pre- preliminary hearing and a de- deposition with the judge, um, with with their um, the the uh, the Hayward's lawyer um, questioning the judge, and of course the the judge's lawyer is questioning Jody about what happened, and um, uh, but but the tricky thing being that. Um, you know, more and more people are starting to realize, you know, as this is how big on the news and more and more people are starting to realize, like, get get ideas as to uh, who this may have been, who's suing the judge. And it, it becomes, is Jody going to be able to speak out against this man and hopefully stop him from hurting any more children? And um, I'll just stop it there because that's the big climax is 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 the uh, the sort of the uh, the uh, pre- preliminary hearing and the, and the deposition, which features data uh, from yes. Star Trek: The Next Generation, which is and he's sweaty, which is which is weird. But we'll talk about that later. Um, but that that's sort of where it ends with her having to call up all her courage after this happened to to um, to speak out against this man who I don't I know, spoiler, this man's awful. So, hey, there we go. So that's, that's, that's where I'll leave it. <laughs> I'm surprised you were able to condense that because this movie has a lot happening in it. Like, it took me a long time a to, to get to that. Yeah. yeah. You did a good job because that's basically the heart of the film. Is But what's interesting to me, so I guess let's talk about original thoughts, and then I just want to talk a little bit about point of view in this film that I find so fascinating. But So my memory of this movie, so it turns out it, I believe it was directed by the guy who directed Jackson County Jail, which I find fascinating, wow. um, and who would go on to direct, uh, this isn't my background, but I feel like it's important here. He would go on to direct a ton of Daniel Steele adaptations in the 90s. Really? So that's a really varied career, and this feels like a pretty good bridge between the two, but um, he also directed the sequel to Jackson County Jail, which was a TV movie called Outside Chance, where he put a lot of the same actors in different roles in the sequel, mm. and then had Yvette Momo. If you've not seen the the TV movie sequel, it's kind of hard to explain because it's really wackadoodle. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> it's got a women in prison thing like this where it's only a portion of the film. But like in Jackson County Jail, she gets raped by a cop in this holding cell. And um, Tommy Lee Jones is in the other holding cell and he kind of lets it happen. But then they escape together after she kills the cop and they go on the run. And it's a pretty good little B movie that came out in the 70s. And the sequel, Tommy Lee Jones just takes off. So like they have somebody come in and do his voiceover. So you don't even see him because they kind of started at the rape. 
And I don't even remember if she gets mm. raped or just assaulted. I can't remember how they open it. But you just hear this actor who's supposed to be Tommy Lee Jones because you see, like, the back of Tommy Lee Jones leaving the jail. And he's like, I'm out of here. And then that's it. And then she goes on the run. And so this guy who had been really mean to her in the original plays her love interest in mm. the sequel as a different character. It's really bizarre. That's interesting. And, Ensemble. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Ira from um, Silent Night, Deadly Night, I believe, is in both films as well. You remember Ira's Oh, voice? sure. Ira. Yeah. Yeah. And you know Ira, Mr. Yeah. C. Someone's that they yeah. say that's really Yeah. Yeah. That guy. So... Like, it's a really weird film, and I'm fascinated by it. And Michael Miller's career is turned out as really interesting. And I'm realizing now he has a lot of women in prison films. And my memory of this was that it was a woman in prison film. Like, it was these teens getting caught in an adult prison and horrible mm-hmm. things happen. And that does happen. But then the second half of the film is, like, a, just a straight drama about dealing with the after effects of this sort of gritty prison drama that had happened earlier on. And it's it's a really interesting film. I don't know that it's perfect. And we can talk about the production schedule a little bit later. Oh, okay. It had a really harried schedule. But um, it's, it's an interesting film. I, I liked it mostly for the actors. Um, but like I said, we'll talk about the point of view later, but I think it gets some things kind of maybe are misguided in the way it was written or structured. And um, and so it's not like a five star film, but it is really good, uh, saved by these wonderful, wonderful performances. And that Andy Griffith continues to play these really hard nosed, really evil kind of characters so well yeah. that. I just I love when he plays these bad guys. He's so good because he he eats it up. And this yes. would have been a, just a little before Matlock's. We're, we're kind of returned to that sort of down home country boy good guy thing that we love too. Everybody loves yes. it, but, yeah, yeah. but this was such a great sort of tail end of that sort of let's play. I think Gramps postdates this, and that might <laughs> that's the last film I can remember that's a TV movie where he played a super bad guy. But um, yeah, it was worthwhile. I'm glad I revisited it. Um, Dan, had you seen this before? I had not. I had not. Um, uh, and I will say that, yeah, Andy Griffith is is spectacularly evil in this, and um, yeah. <laughs> and and he's. Uh, it's funny. I actually rewatched uh, Winter Kill um, a few weeks ago, um, which is one, one of, of his. My favorites. I love that. That's such a good team. I love his. I love his cop in that because it's such a creepy film. And yeah, the whole thing, and there's this great, and, and just this great thing where he's he he's like he's a good cop, but this might actually be a case that he's not good enough to solve, yeah. which I kind of like, and it's it's really great for him. But seeing him in this, I could only think when he got to the end of this, he was like, "Whew, wow! If I ever play a character like that again, can I be a charming, nice guy?" And someone handed him a pilot script and said, well, yeah. we've got one here, Mr. Matlock. Yeah. And he was like, oh, thank goodness. Because Judge, uh, Judge Sullivan is, is I, I honestly, at times, I hated him. Yeah. He's just a bad guy in a different way than he was, like, in Pray for the Wildcats or, or Savages. In those movies, mm-hmm. he's, like, larger than life. And so he's got this J.R. Ewing kind of quality where it's like yes. you love to hate him. And it's fun here. I think it's because, well, supposedly this was based on a true story, and I think that they might open the film saying that. But, like, yes. the... There's an idea that maybe judges like him do exist, and so it makes it a lot harder to watch it like as an entertaining kind of thing, and, oh, yeah, and it feels was, more yeah. more real in that way. Yeah, and he does a really good job at it. But I agree with you; he's very unlikable and not like in a fun way. Yes, that and that was that was my problem with the movie is that, um, um, and I'll talk. I mean, I also had a problem with I think the uh, the sequence where the moment the gals get in the car to the moment we hear like you're going to juvenile court 
something is bungled in that. I don't know if it's the writing or the editing, but I will talk. I could talk about this more later because this is just a nitpicky thing. But like they they say as the movie goes along, they say they were out all night, but I can't um I can't figure out where they're saying that from from the point of view of the girls in the car, um, and it's a really weird scene where it, it looks to me like she came home like three or four hours late and I'm so confused as to why her parents went to the police and why all this happened it's, it seems like much ado about nothing um, because of the way the scene is done uh, and again I'll, I'll talk about it more in a minute I, I want to go through a more general overview here's the thing when I saw the writers names come up it's a Burke and Schwartz and Burke and Schwartz they're known to me they wrote some of the best episodes of Manimal <laughs> they also well, they also they also co-created with David Hasselhoff Baywatch Nights. Oh. Well then this movie's perfect. Yeah and they, and they were sort of the the ones I believe who were in charge of making the second season of Baywatch Nights, which is one of my favorite seasons of anything into the X-Files rip-off, which yes. is an absolute joy. Um and so, so when I saw so that you mean the part you mean the part where Shawnee Smith becomes a panther? Yes. It's intentional. Yes. Okay. That exactly. 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 And and Andy Griffith raises his hands in the air, and the uh, his robe falls to the floor, and a hawk flies out from under. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I the the problem I have with the movie is I I don't think it's entertaining. I think it's very uh, didactic, and um, it has a few entertaining moments near the end when we get to the the hearing portion of it, but they're not enough to, for to justify for me. Um, I don't like the way they treat the girls in the prison. I know that's like, oh, really, Dan? Congratulations on on that uh, really but original it's not, thought. It's not necessarily entertaining, but I'm glad you mentioned just real quick. I don't want to cut you off, but the court oh, no. to me, the heart of the film is actually really at the end of the movie in that court scene, because yes. I think I think that's where Andy Griffith really like it gets to like work that sort of menacing character to its I don't apex, right? And so yes. it's it's great, it's great, and um. But yeah, I agree. It's it's kind of it's it's grueling in a way. It is, and it's it's surprisingly grueling with their you know it's um like like when they when the, the gals are let into the prison you know you see like Shawnee Smith with a towel around her and her character's fifteen I don't know how old she was when she made the movie I don't think much older I would I would think she's probably in the vicinity but she and she like goes into a shower and um, uh, to shower and it's like. The, the police person they have is a guy. And I thought, isn't that an underage girl? Isn't yeah. that, you know, and there's just something about it that's like, they sort of, in, in, in Merrill, he says, the, he says that the parents are hoodwinked to signing that paper in the beginning. I don't know, hoodwinked makes it sound like it's going to be a goofy romp. <laughs> um, and so that may be the incorrect word to use, but that is the feeling you get. Like they're they're sort of tricked into signing this paper because they're like, okay, well, what's going to happen? And then when it happens, they're like, it, it's so weird because like, surely someone must know of this judge because like when he brings them in and puts them in jail, suddenly there's 20 years of things that he's done and yet no one seems to know <laughs> this and and it's it's a weird kind of thing where um it's 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 tough to describe because there are there are things that happen like that in the movie where it's it's like wouldn't it be like oh that's judge sullivan 
don't get in front of Judge Sullivan. Did, like, is no one else who went to her high school ever gone up in front of Judge Sullivan? You would think they would have. And someone would know who he was. But it's kind of like he almost appears out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's done 20 years worth of horrible stuff in that town. Yeah. And it's just like, there there are, I, it, it feels like, I, I don't know which elements of this were, were real events and which ones they, they, they grafted on. But um, it, it's just... Um, the the film feels wonky to me throughout because the yeah the scenes in the jail are are just are just were just kind of too unplay I mean I you know I don't mean to say like if everyone's you know of adult you know of of consenting age or you know they can all be in women in a violent in a violence in a women's prison you know with the Bruno Mattei film or they could be in a Jess Franco film. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, you know, you should end up in a, you know, if you end up in a prison and you're over 21, whatever happens, happens. But I'm saying there's something about this being a TV movie and these being gals of that age that um, just made me cringe (laughs) throughout those scenes. And I just wanted them to get out of prison. And then when you see the scene with the deputy taking her into the room, you're like, oh, please don't be doing, oh, God. And it's just like, you know, when the lawyer shows up, he tries to be a little perky, even you know, though he's got a tough job ahead of him. But the but but the stuff with the dad and all it's I I'm glad I watched the film. I don't watch a lot of these kind of TV movies. I tend to watch the dumb stuff like Escape and things like that. But this was um this this was an interesting. I don't I don't think it quite like you said it doesn't quite fully it doesn't quite fully do whatever it thinks it's doing, and but then it does some other things more possibly than I wanted to see. So I'm I mean if if I were to give it like out of a ten with ten being the best, maybe five. Mm. Yeah, I think I like the movie more than you, but but what I kind of disappointed me. So I talk a lot about and I'm not gonna go through a big to do about it, but I talk a lot on my commentaries and on this show about how T V movies are marketed towards women and mm. they're supposed to be telling women's stories and they do that in the genre films, they do it in the dramas and the comedies, you know, not across the board, but the majority of these films. You can pull out some sort of female centric story and so here we've got these two young girls like uh being trapped in a sort of in a weird born innocent kind of circular uh punishment system that doesn't Mm -hmm. really allow them to get out of it and then it kind of breaks them right and that's i understand the point of that and that's great that's fabulous so here you're bringing to light this issue right but but after they get out of jail so jody has been raped and so for me the whole film afterwards should be about her reclaiming her life to Mm. some degree after the attack, but it actually switches point of views to the dad really for quite a bit. Yeah. 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 And and I, I love Ralph Waite who plays the father. I love Ralph Waite. I love Ralph Waite. I love the Waltons. He's terrific in the film, but I feel like if you're going to tell a story about sexual assault from the man's point of view, then don't make a movie because I don't, I don't want to see it. It's not, I mean, I guess there, you could do it, but I haven't really seen anybody do it to a degree where I would want to watch it. And and the TV movies that have done it have all failed like revenge for rape. Um, 
with Mike Connors is kind of an insulting film about a girl who gets raped when she's on a vacation with her husband played by Mike Connors because it becomes about him seeking revenge and not to be too spoilery, but they they've indicated that she might be a hysterical female. And the same thing happened with one of the first movies that dealt with rape that was made for TV called cry rape. And, and ultimately, while I think cry rape is an important film because it even came out before a case of rape, it's kind of insulting. And I don't think this movie is insulting, but I think it's misguided in that this should be Jody's story from here on out. Yes. After that incident, I only want to see Jody's point of view, and I want to know what Jody's doing to take care of things. And she does interesting things because she's so good. Charlie yeah. Smith is so good in it that you you like. Why would you leave her? Why would you go? Right. But like she does things like there's a point where she's supposed to go, and they're prepping for the for the like, arbitration. Whatever. It's not really a court hearing. It's that sort of yeah, mediation session. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And or inquest or whatever you want to call it. And she gets she puts on like a lot of makeup and and they're really upset by that because they're worried that she's gonna be judged by the fact that she looks older and, and looks maybe sexier in the way she's made herself up to be you know, and and she's working through something that happened to her and she's sort of acting out in these weird little ways and that's in the script and that's really interesting stuff. But it just happens and then it goes away. And mm. And you're like, well, but this is like her recovery is so much more yes. important to me than, than how the dad is dealing with it. And I don't yeah. mind them focusing some of it on the dad, but I feel like they took too much of it. The dad, I think, can I, I, I yeah. just think that they give the dad like kind of the big dramatic scene yeah. where he, he goes to the, he goes, he gets drunk, he goes to the alley like the night before the, the whatever, the deposition, the thingy. Uh, I like inquest. That <laughs> um, uh, they they go the the night the night before, and he's got a gun and he's going to kill the judge, but he doesn't in the end. He uh, he I, I wouldn't call it chickening out, um, but it's a weird scene because you sit there during the scene going, oh dad, don't do that, dad, no don't, no dad, stop, stop, dad, that was horrible. Why is this scene here? No, and it's it's an exciting scene. It's a tense scene, but it feels inappropriate yeah. that sort of the big tense moment is because you know that you know from seeing Jody that when she's going to be questioned she's going to carry it on. I mean like and there's a moment in it where the the lawyer is really badgering her and she she yells a statement out and starts crying and she just stares at at, at Judge Andy Griffith and just gives it right back to him and you you can sort of see on his face that he's still got the stern old white guy thing on, but there's a bit of a oh wow <laughs> this is I've never actually I've never actually had one of the kids do this before right. you know there's there's a bit you don't he doesn't break, but he also doesn't he also doesn't like turn and go please girl sit down girl or something like that yeah girl let's park it you know but but there's and and it's so and you. you you're right. That that could be one of the things why the second half of the movie confused me too, because I understand giving sort of um, uh, uh, time over to say like the lawyer because he's going to be the one who has to guide them through it, but but the dad gets a lot of time, a lot more than the, the mom who just kind of yeah. sits around and says just says random things and then the movie ends. Yeah, that would have been a really interesting dynamic because 
uh, uh, the father dealing with his daughter being raped isn't often covered in these kind of films. It's usually the mom dealing with the daughter and the aftermath of it. Um, I'm thinking of like Are You in the House Alone, where there's a little bit given to the father in that, but but not nearly as much, I think, between Black Danner and um, Kathleen Biller's character. And that's a great film. I mean, I don't want to diminish anything about that movie, but it's unusual to to see the father play a more integral role, I, to the best of my memory, there might be movies that people are thinking of that they could tell me about if they want to send titles. But, like, that's an interesting dynamic, but it really doesn't become about him and her until the right before they go to that little courtroom scene. It's it's yes. really about him co- coming to terms with what happened to his daughter. And that's interesting, and I'm sure some men maybe found catharsis in it. I don't know. But that's not the heart of the story. <laughs> seems you know? inappropriate, yeah. yeah. It's, it seems, yeah. I mean, I guess you could make a whole film like mm-hmm. that but but I, I kind of feel like if you're going to spend so much time with the two young girls and then remove one of them from the equation then you better focus on the girl that's left behind right and yes. so so it just feels unfair to the audience i guess that that's the approach that they took yes it's i it and and, and even like when you get to the it, it, it just just because of that it kind of skews the um the second half of the film in weird ways so like even during the closing scene when when jody is is well she's jogging and you get a voiceover for what's happening in her life now and it's it feels um it doesn't it it kind of ends and you're like oh okay and it doesn't have like you feel like there should be something more to it but they like it's 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 weird. Like they, they they took so much time away from her to focus on her dad, and after a time, when it becomes you know like like one of the last scenes they have together, where he's like he's finally coming to terms with it, and it's kind of like oh, who cares if you're yeah. coming to terms with it? And it's just it's 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 almost like at times like there are about three or four different movies within this movie. I don't know if any of them are great, but I think if we had followed Jody's character on down, we might have had one that was very good. Yeah. And and I would like to talk in a minute or two, maybe not right now, but about just the the opening the the um the uh, joyride um sequence and sure. why I'm confused by it. Sure. I mean, I think we've hit the the, the last half. Uh, we did this kind of backwards, but but I think the yes. structure <laughs> of the film is really important and and because it changes so abruptly. I, I don't know how you could talk about the first part without talking about the second part first, but like, yes. but like, um, yeah, we can definitely talk about that. And I actually like the jail stuff. I agree with you that it is kind of unnerving the older cop and, um, but, and also the jail it's, itself is really stark. And I, I appreciate that. It's, um, yeah. it's a really dingy, gross place. And, and you really feel that they're in a really bad situation. Um, and I appreciate the first half of the film because it feels up until the rape, it feels like a different kind of film. Like, mm-hmm. like you think it's going to be like, um, it's not born innocent because there's rape in that as well, but something like cage without a key, uh, which is kind of a rip off of born innocent or maybe it predates it. But one of those women in prison movies, that's actually about like teenage delinquents where mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a little easier to remove yourself from the film. And, yeah. and so they're just these teenage kids who go on a joyride and then something bad happens. Right. And, and I can watch it as that sort of film, but then it becomes like this really dark film emotionally. And so, yeah, yeah but the yeah. first half I, I actually kind of like, um, 
because uh, I really love Tammy Lauren and, and Shawnee Smith, and I don't know why Tammy Lauren always plays the bad girl, but she's really good at it, <laughs> and I hope she always plays the bad girl, um, but she's excellent in this, and um, and she's so much fun to watch, and she is. they're very believable as friends, even though they both come from different, like, one's really got really good grades, you know, and comes from, well, I guess they, you know, it's interesting, Tammy Lauren comes from a broken home, mm-hmm. um, her, uh, Jody doesn't. And um, and they're very different, but you could see them as friends in the film, and so they do yes. really well together. And so you care about them when they show up there, and they're stuck in this situation. Um, and so I found it pretty enjoyable. But um, but and I didn't think much about the the car scene. So why don't you go ahead and talk about it? <laughs> now maybe I'm overthinking it, but um, uh, oh yeah, I am overthinking it. But uh, just give me give me three minutes, yeah. and I'll, I'll tell you what I'm overthinking um, because. Uh, so, so they get in the car. Now I'm thinking like when I was in, in high school and stuff, high school got out, we got out around three, three in the afternoon. And that day she's, that she, she's not going to track or anything like that. She, she just gets in the car with, with, um, with Tammy Lauren and they go driving. And, and the thing is you got, I mean, you know, when you were in high school, you know, we all did really stupid stuff that, um, we didn't get in trouble for and you know and occasionally we did get in trouble for the stupid stuff we did so you, you can see like you know this is technically you know they don't have drivers li- well not technically they don't have driver's license so they shouldn't be doing that okay so that so that's one thing they're also that's not her car okay so that's that that you know settles in J- judge sullivan as far as judge sullivan is concerned that means that they are juvenile delinquents and they're going in the can for a day or two but the thing the thing that confused me and this is purely sort of um it's the writing or it's the editing or something but it's you see um them get in the car and drive off and then it goes to the mom and dad being like where is she how come she hasn't called what's going on and then i forget the exact um uh, uh order of the scenes but more or less you you cut to the girls in the car and now it's dark out so let's say if this is track team time this is october november maybe it's now like um, uh, five thirty, six o'clock, something like that. They've been out driving for maybe let's say two hours. Uh, and Tammy's like, "Oh yeah, we." I think they're looking for her boyfriend. I forget what they're doing. It doesn't really matter. But they're they're driving. They're still driving around. And Jody keeps saying, "You know, let's stop at a phone so I can call my parents." No, let's drive around a little more. And then it cuts to the parents at the police station. Yeah, she um she always calls and she's not home. Oh, so she's a runaway. Okay, sign this paper and you turn over all responsibility. Okay, they sign the paper and then they leave and then they go home and there's Jody sitting at the you know like kitchen table eating a sandwich. She says she called an hour ago, but no one was home. And they're like, oh, okay, well, don't do that again. All right. And then suddenly she's pulled in, and she goes through all this horrible stuff. At the end of the movie, they keep saying over and over again, she took a, they, they, they were out overnight. I see no sign that they were out overnight. To me, overnight means it's morning when you get back. To me, like, maybe they were out half the night. To me, it looks like it's probably maybe 8.30 nine o'clock something like that in no way shape or form does the film sell me on they've been out driving all night it looks like they got we used to do this after school in high school we get in a car and we drive around for a couple hours but you know what we had to do after a time you had to get gas (laughs) you got something to eat you went to the bathroom and on one of those occasions 
if you needed to make a phone call, and Jody seems very responsible. And I don't understand why she can't get her friend to pull over just to stop at a phone. But at one point, they, I mean, they left school, and presumably they would have stopped sometime within the next two hours or so to either, like I said, have dinner, pee, um, or just get gas. And the fact that it's presented as being they were out all night, but for some reason Tam, uh, 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 Tammy Lawrence's character wouldn't let them out of the car until like an hour before she got home confuses the hell out of me. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand the timeline of it. Because to me, when I watch it the first, I've watched it three times now, every time I watch it, it looks to me like she's getting home around eight thirty, nine o'clock. I don't understand why. This is the mid-80s. You know, kids who were like three or four years younger than her used to stay out that late, and parents were like, ah, they'll be home soon kind of thing. I don't understand why the parents went to the police as they did. I don't understand why the why the police didn't do that thing that they do in every and and you may know what I'm I'm going to say here here man, but the uh that thing that cops do in every TV movie or movie or TV show when someone shows up and says, you know, our daughter's missing, our son's missing. Well, how long has he been gone? Well, he left school or she left school at four o'clock. Well, it hasn't been twenty-four hours. We can't do anything. Where'd that go? Yeah, isn't I that a thing? That. I did think about that. You're right. Yeah. And 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 so maybe that's part of the hoodwinking. But but then that 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 <laughs> the does, but that does, But that doesn't make any sense to me because like I recently watched a film called Towing from the late seventies about a towing company that rips people off. And one of the things they do is they like lie about where you can park and you can't park and they lie about fines and stuff like that. But that's to make a lot of money. I don't understand why the cop like hoodwinks them if it, because it I mean, they they haven't been gone all all night because they even say when oh, in the morning we have to go to juvenile court. Isn't it the morning now? Weren't they out all night? I don't understand. Were were they out for a day and a half or something? I just and I'm sorry the and and the problem is that that bothers me so that then when they're hauled into jail and horrible things happen I keep thinking but the movie didn't convince me that they did everything wrong that they said and that annoys me if you're going to I mean I know I know it's you know Judge Sullivan is obviously an ass but there's something about it where like the movie is trying to present them a bit as they're a bit they become a bit irresponsible but they're high school kids, and they're just doing that for to me what looks like a couple hours, and it just there's there's a there's a disconnect in between the sequence, like I said, when they get in the car, and then when they say we're going to juvenile court in the morning, something is wrong in that scene that I have to forget about if I'm going to watch the rest of the movie because I don't know if it's the, like I said the writing or the editing, but something doesn't work in that scene for me, and it's the timeline. And that and, and that's just me. The timeline bothers me. Yeah, I and mean, I'll just back away. That makes sense. I mean, I will say them not doing anything that major, I think, is the point, because mm. because they're getting punished for something really ridiculous. Because it wasn't a stolen mm-hmm. car. Now they don't have driver's licenses, and that's bad. But like, that's not the worst thing. They didn't get in an accident. You yes. know what I mean? And so like so like I think the whole point was that what they did was such a misdemeanor that to be punished that the way they were punished is mm-hmm. really horrible. 
but I, I agree that the timeline is kind of funky and it is kind of funky to have the parents be so oh helicoptery you know what I mean yeah yeah with, <laughs> with Jody um like I sort of get it, but like you're right. I think the cop would have been like, "You have to come back tomorrow night for, before we." Well, yeah, really. This. Yeah, but it's it's been three hours. It's been like three hours. You know, <laughs> uh, you know that happens on occasion. Yeah. So so there are things about the movie that don't necessarily gel. But when yes. you're talking about the guys who created Manimal or whatever, then <laughs> you know. The the ma- the best writers for Manimal, yeah. the Glenn A. Larson created Manimal. Yeah, I realized that. when I said that I got that wrong. But like, <laughs> but like the two two of the main guys behind Manimal, and it's like, it's like this makes so much more sense to me. Like all of a sudden the movie, all of its flaws are okay if because you've... it's the guys behind Baywatch and I and Manimal. It's like yes, yeah. exactly. Now it all makes sense. Yeah, yeah exactly. Now it's fine. Exactly. There's no problem. Uh-huh. But now it's great. It's the best movie I've ever seen. It's a weird movie for them, isn't it? Because it's not like yes. I mean I haven't looked at the rest of their filmography, but it looks like they didn't do a lot of. It sounds like they didn't do a lot of um, so. these kind of like heavy duty dramas, which might explain why it's got these loopholes and also since mm-hmm. it looks like they're writing a lot of male centric kind of shows it yes. might explain why the tables got kind of turned there in the second half and yeah. became more about yeah. the father mm-hmm. um, but it's not a wasted effort so it's no. you know because it's got some interesting things to it it is harrowing in the, in some of the right places you know yeah, yeah. Um, it's just that I think it could have benefited by uh, a different point of view I think that's the only real problem yes. I have with it yeah, and I think I think if if they just just completely sort of given over the ending to, and they sort of do, but not quite to Shawnee Smith and Andy Griffith, it would have been really powerful. As it is, it's pretty darn it's a pretty darn powerful ending, I think. But I just um, it's it's not quite as as like like I said when Shawnee Smith breaks down, that's incredible, and Andy Griffith telling all these sort of atrocities and terrible things he's done, smoking his cigarette. Yes, right. Chain smoking away is just really good. Well, and you you kind of wish there was a better film in in back of them. So so there's this movie called Kinjite, Forbidden Subjects. Forbidden Subjects. Yes, with uh, Charles Bronson <laughs> and Nicole Eggert's in that movie. And in the movie, Nicole Eggert is like a child prostitute or something like that. And and I think Charles Bronson saves her from her whatever doomed fate. And she's not happy about it like she's in like a halfway I can't remember exactly how it goes but anyway at the, towards the end of the movie he goes to visit her or she calls him or something and they're together in this room and she's like what did you do I, I didn't ask you to help me and I don't want your help and and they go back and forth and when I saw that movie the first for the first time several years ago now mm-hmm. I thought to myself wow look at Nicole Eggert this 15 year old actress going toe to toe with the great Charles Bronson right and that's what this scene at the end of this film reminded me of it was like we've got this great young up and coming actress who had really not done much before this movie going toe to toe with one of the greats Mm -hmm. of television and of film to be honest and and kicking ass you know (laughs) yeah she is so good yeah yeah, and it's worth it just to see those two together and that must have been a really tremendous experience for her I'm imagining because I mean I don't know what Andy Griffith is like to work with but like Mm -hmm. I would imagine that you just learn a ton of stuff just Mm -hmm. being around him you know and so it's such a treat to see like this seasoned veteran actor like and this young person keeping up with him every step of the way. So, so yeah. So for that part, yeah, it's definitely worth it. And of course, like I said, I love, love, love Ralph Wayne. And um, <laughs> Diane Ladd plays the mom, and she's fantastic yeah. in it. I mean, it's got a lot going for it. It's just, 
it takes a wrong turn. It's yes, yeah, literally. Some, some, yeah, yeah, exactly. Something, something about it. It's like there's some the conglomeration of things in it doesn't quite work. Bits work better than others, and the bits you have to wade through that aren't great are are like kind of a bit of a slog, unfortunately. But but if you can if you can, if you can get through to the good bits, those are there's some really. They're beautifully acted and well-done moments, I think. Yeah, and I wanted to briefly mention, I didn't put this in my background notes, but I'm looking at the IMDb page because when you said, oh, if I get the characters' names wrong, you'll let me know. And I was like, oh, shoot, I don't have the <laughs> So I pulled up the IMDb page, and I was scrolling through it because it's got this really amazing cast, including you mentioned Brent Spiner. And, but it also has, uh, brought, well, Alice MacArthur, who plays uh, Corey Yeager, who's the rapist in the film, he was in Madonna's Papa Don't Preach video a couple years later. That's what he's most famous for. But he did do a few TV movies, and he's quite a good actor. Um, but, like, um, Brian Robbins plays Lonnie, and he's one of the boyfriends, writer love interests. And I noticed that Christine Haji is in an uncredited role, um, and oh. they were both on head of the class together around this time. Oh, yes. And I just yes. thought that was interesting. So I wanted to point that out. But if you don't have anything else to add, I will go into the background. I, I'm i good. I think, I think like, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's not what I'm going to watch again. But if you're a fan of Manimal, I'm kidding. If you're a fan <laughs> of Andy Griffith and Shawnee Smith, they do some really great work. But you have to maneuver your way through it a bit. Yeah, it's not a popcorn film at all, which is exactly, yeah. exactly. But uh but it's worth it for the actors. Um so mm -hmm. this originally aired on October twenty seventh, nineteen eighty five on NBC. It ran against an ABC part of the World Series and an airing of the Defiant Ones. Now that's the original Defiant Ones. The uh remake which was made for television with Robert Yurick and I don't remember whose co star is. Um that no was the Defiant Ones with Robert Yurick? I think it was. That actually ended up premiering a year later. Um so they were still showing that the original on TV in primetime, which is amazing. On, on CBS was Crazy Like a Fox and um, an airing of Trapper John MD. So I'm pretty sure that the night this originally aired, I was watching Trapper John. Um, it would have been in its last season, I think, uh, and this would have made it a Sunday night. Um, it came in at number 24 for the week with a 17.2 slash 26. It did rerun in June of uh, 1987, and it did really well. It came in at number 8 for the week with a 15.8 slash 28. So all that means is basically that last number, the 26, kind of means the percentage of people who had televisions in their homes that were watching TV on the night this aired were watching um, Crime of Innocence. So a quarter of the country, that's not so bad. This was supposedly inspired by true events, although I haven't seen anybody talk about the actual story that it's based on, so I don't know if they amalgamated stories or what, but, um, but supposedly it's based on a, a true story. So filming was reported um, in October of 1985, and in my notes I wrote Crazy Talk, uh, because you don't make TV movies a month before they're supposed to air. But there was a newspaper article where they interviewed Diane Ladd, and she uh, said that they wrapped shooting three weeks before the movie aired. So, wow. yeah. So that might be why there's some problems with the script. That could make sense, yeah, if they were rushing it. Yeah, yeah. and so mm, it was shot in sense. Santa Barbara. I will say Diane Ladd was interested in making it because she had actually been touring as like a political activist, and she found that this movie had like some socio-cultural implications and was a movie that was worth making because these things do happen to young children um, in certain towns, and so that's why she was drawn to it. I don't think she'd actually been acting for a while. I feel like there might have been a little hiatus between this and her previous, but I can't remember now. Um, and uh, Andy Griffith had won an Emmy in 1981 for the miniseries Murder in Texas. 
Uh, like Dan said, this was shot in Santa Barbara. And newspapers were writing a little bit about this film, among many others, because 1985 to 1986 was sort of the year of the true stories. Um, so this came out with a slew of true true films, um, including Out of the Darkness, which is a movie about the Son of Sam with Martin Sheen, one of my favorite true crime films. It's so good. It's, it's actually about the cop who busts Son of Sam. It's, it's really good. It's a drama. Um, I love it. Imagine came out, which was the story of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, which goes all the way up to their um, John's assassination. Um, the Betty Ford story and The Last Days of Patton were among oh, wow. many true, true inspired, inspired by true event movies that came out in that season. Also, dramas were really taking over big time, and genre movies were kind of getting pushed out. And it's not that they weren't still being made. Obviously, I, I saw what you did came a few years later. This was kind of like the era of the drama was very prominent. And although this was a very early appearance for Shawnee Smith, she seemed to get more publicity for her casting than Tammy Lauren did. And I'm not really sure uh, why that is. But of course, both would go on to become stars of popular occult horror films, right? Shawnee Smith for Saw and the Blob and Tammy Lauren for Wishmaster. And as I said, the director... Michael Miller was predominantly a TV movie director. His first TV movie was Outside Chance, which was the sequel to Jackson County Jail. And then he, here's a few of the Daniel Seale adaptations he directed. Daddy, Palomino, Perfect Stranger, Heartbeat, Star, and Once in a Lifetime. Now, in that list are some of my all-time favorite Daniel Steele adaptations. So he's a god. He's a god. Um, and the two twins, you remember the twin boys in this movie? Oh, yeah, that's a good scene. We yeah. didn't mention that scene. Yeah, yeah, that's a good scene. They yeah. were Broadway actors. Oh, wow. They seemed a bit theatrical. Yeah, I think one of them was an understudy for another one uh, on Broadway. Yeah. Um, I don't remember which one was which. Uh, and I don't think they have a very big filmography. But, um, yeah, they, they're very interesting. And that is my background. And I think we've covered Crime of Innocence to the best of our ability. <laughs> yes. I think we did, did pretty good for, for Burke and Schwartz. I think yeah, for we Burke covered and Schwartz, pretty... we did what we could, Burke and Schwartz. So, yeah. so it, you know, whatever. So it was an interesting film. It was great to see Tammy Lauren and Shawnee Smith in their first yes. film together. Yes. But now but... we're getting to the classic TV movie. Yes. Um, I Saw What You Did, which came out in 1988. And Dan, why don't you give us a breakdown of that? All right, uh, I'll, I'll I'll try to keep this. This is uh, pretty simple. And actually, I have the names here, so I won't embarrass anyone involved in the Made for TV Mayhem show. Um, and this is about yeah, it's about again high school girls. And Shawnee Smith is Kim Fielding. Tammy uh, Lauren is Lisa Harris. They go to um, and and Lisa uh, Kim and her sister Julia, played by Candace Cameron, live out in the middle of nowhere in a farmhouse. And Kim invites Lisa over for the night to hang out. And Lisa, who's who's you know, she's a bit of a you know, just just sort of like in crime of innocence, she's a bit of a you know, she's a bit of a tougher girl, bit of a you know, slightly bit of a bad girl. Is trying to invite her boyfriend to come over, and he keeps calling up, or she keeps calling him, and he keeps not showing up. As this is going on, we see uh, the work of a uh, composer uh, named Adrian Lancer played by Robert Carradine and I always mix my Carradines up except for John so if I mention a Carradine and I get a name wrong I apologize um, but it's Adrian Lancer is a com film composer and he's just been fired from a job for doing something crazy apparently uh, they show a montage of clips from like Dracula and House of Wax in the beginning with music set to it I was a little unsure exactly what they thought was crazy about it I thought it was pretty cool but 
Adrian is fired, and it's implied that Adrian is not in the best of mental health. Uh, we meet his brother Stephen, played by David Carradine, who who, who um, kind of keeps a bit of watch over his brother. Well, we'll we'll talk more about him later. And on the same uh, day that he gets fired, he's going to propose. Uh, Adrian um, is going to propose to his fiance, whose name I've forgotten. Is it, is Robin? it Robin? Robin? Yes. Okay. That um, he's going to propose to Robin. Robin says no, and um, uh, he kills her. And <laughs> as you do. As you do. <laughs> and and so what happens is, meanwhile, uh, Kim and Lisa are, and Julie, Julia, uh, Candace Cameron, are back at the farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And, and like I said, Lisa's trying to get her boyfriend to show up. I don't remember his her boyfriend's name. Mark? Steve? Maybe Jimbo? Mike. Mike. It could be Mike. And they decide to play phone games. If you've seen the original, I saw what you did. You you know where this is going. And they play play assorted games, calling up people and pranking them. And um, it it actually is more complicated than I remember it being from the original. But I haven't seen the original in ages. But they end up sort of pranking Adrian. Okay, find me a man's number. Don't make it a Smith or Jones. Okay. One. Lancer. Adrian Lancer. Sounds sexy. Man for you, girl. Robin, I need you desperately. Adrian, I don't want somebody to need me desperately. What I need is somebody who's strong. I can be strong. You're strong? Look yeah. at you, Adrian. Look at yourself. You're not strong. Look, Robin. If I know that your love will be my I'm not ready for this. Don't say that. It's true. It's not true. It's true. It's true. I don't love you, okay? I don't love you. I don't love you. I don't love you, Adrian. I don't. Shawnee Smith's character kind of we, we hear his music playing at one point and she kind of likes it and, and Lisa, Tammy Lawrence's character is like oh you like him, you should talk to him give him a call again, kind of thing And they call Adrian and she's going to sort of say hello to him but she ends up doing the and they've done this previously, I saw what you did and I know who you are, you know, and I know what you're up to, I forget, there's a, you know, there's a litany of fun stuff that they say, I know what you're wearing, um, and she says I saw what you did, you know, and I know who you are and Adrian's like, what? How did you see that? And he thinks that obviously she has seen him kill uh, Robin. 
and it gets uh it's 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 not overcomplicated but but they end up the gals end up deciding going to, to go to Adrian's house just to see him just to see what he looks like and Kim kind of goes in there under the pretense of I think like her car broke down or something like that and meets him and he's a little weird he's gone that's it let's get out of here no wait are you just gonna let a golden opportunity just slip through your hands yes oh. it won't be this tomorrow there's the front door go for it and what do I say to him you're the diplomat's daughter you'll figure it out no I was just about to knock. Um, my car broke down. I've been driving around and I ran out of gas or something. I saw your light on. Do you want to use the phone? What if it's an inconvenience? I no, can't. you can use my phone. Um, really nice of you. Phone's right there. Yeah, thanks. Come get me. Great. Uh, I'm at Adrian's. It's on Broadview off of Highland. Great. Fine. Thanks. Um, she ends up kind of leaving his house, uh, his apartment, his house in a rush, um, and leaving her purse behind. And you can kind of guess what happens from there on in. Adrian discovers that this is the gal who called him earlier and who seems to have known that he killed Robin. He attacks his brother and seems like he kills him, maybe, but doesn't. And so he kind of... Adrian begins to hunt Kim down. And eventually it all ends up at their farmhouse. And there's barking dogs. And Cameron's running around. And things catch on fire. And there's a crazy guy who who seemed like he was a nutty guy in the beginning, and we could talk about him, uh, a, a neighbor who was, I want to sell you some fruit, who seems a little weird, ends up maybe helping them or maybe not. And it, it ends, as you would imagine, with all sorts of chaos with Adrian trying to catch Kim and kill her because he thinks she's seen what he did. And Kim's just goofing around. So I'll leave it at that. It's, it's I saw I saw what you did. I mean, I, I was going to try to over elaborate, but it's I saw what you did. I think everyone knows. Uh, everyone knows whether or not they've seen it. You know the basic storyline. They they call someone who just killed someone, and the killer comes after them. That's that's the story. That's the story. And this is a great mm. remake. Now I have seen the original mm. too, but I literally have not seen it since DVD first came to be because I remember that's, renting yes. it right. Yep. And because uh, I'd heard of it, and I never had had a chance to see it. And when it came out, I went to 2020 Video or whatever, and I rented it. <laughs> and I remember quite liking it. 
um, yeah. but I couldn't tell you the ins and outs of it. But this movie, I remember watching on the night it originally aired and loving it because it was marketed for people like me, teenagers, and it was a teen horror film. And at the time, I was starting to really get into horror, but I wasn't really going to the movies yet. And I don't know if I, I was, I was probably old enough, but I don't think I knew enough people that I could go with. And they still kind of scared me. And this seemed kind of like a safer film. And I was exciting mm -hmm. and I loved it. I like my memories of watching it are very good. And, um, and then I caught up with it again, not that long ago when I was living in Pittsburgh. And I rewatched it after the first time in like many, many years. And I thought, God, this is a fabulous movie. It's so well filmed. I love the actors. And it's creepy, and I think it's just a really great little point A to point B kind of movie. And I loved it. Now, I'm not sure. Have you ever seen this before, Dan? I watched it around when it originally aired. It aired the day before my 15th birthday. Wow. And I I want to say, I don't remember what was showing up against it, but I want to say I recorded it and watched whatever was airing and watched it later because I seem to remember when I first watched it fast forwarding through commercials I don't know why I have that memory but I did watch it in the vicinity of when it originally aired and I remember enjoying it and then I watched it again two or three years ago um, for one of those sort of um, Halloween things that you find on like Letterboxd or Twitter where people are like you know on October 1st watch a movie that begins with the same letter as your first name on the second you know watch a movie that you saw when you were nine you know it's stuff like that and one of them was like watch a TV movie that you saw when you were a kid and I was like, well, uh, and I looked for Fresno, but I ended up doing. Didn't Letterbox say watch a TV movie that you watched that fell that aired the day before your fifteenth birthday? That, that was the oh, that was the one. Yeah. That was one. It was so specific, I could <laughs> not watch it. And so I actually watched it maybe two years ago or so. Uh, and um, I, I want to say probably um, either either October two thousand eighteen or two thousand uh, uh, two thousand nineteen. And I remember enjoying it again. And remember thinking that it was more elaborate, like the storytelling uh, was more elaborate than I remember it being. And so, yeah, and I just um, I just watched it three more times over the past month. So there you go. Oh, and I did I did watch the original like you did when it came out. Like I don't know, was it Anchor Bay or whoever released it on DVD? I did rent it from um, somewhere here in LA, twenty twenty Tower Video, something like that. Um, odyssey video in north hollywood i don't know but i do remember renting it and watching it and so what are your thoughts on the film in general okay um i think it's a lot of fun it's it's it yeah it is well directed and i think i think occasionally there are moments where i i i, I feel like the script is slightly overcomplicating things uh where i feel like there could have been a possibly a more direct route taken but I like the way it gets itself to like when 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 they first call Adrian it's not about it's not the I saw what you did it's about something else you know I need to speak to Adrian oh and it's it's the girlfriend and Adrian's in the shower oh is he yes yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> who is this and and Robin's like is this from the studio uh and then and then like um uh uh, uh Lisa hands it off to Kim uh Shawnee Smith and Kim's like uh and she's just like yes 
oh, okay, I'll have my, you know, and then they leave the phone like sitting on the on the um, on the table as you can hear his music playing and stuff. And then and then um, Julia, the the little sister, kind of marks off the page where Adrian's name is because Kim seemed to kind of like him. And then eventually, kind of, they end up calling Adrian again. So I like that. Um, you know, I, I don't mind the fact that I thought it seemed a little overcomplicated in its plotting, um, because I think it it works nicely and it builds and it builds. Yeah. And when you get to the cl- when you get to the climax with like Kim standing in her house with only her and her little sister, and and you just kind of like and she's like Adrian, and you just you're kind of like yeah Kim and he's like somewhere in the room with her or something and it's like it's in the end it's really great and I've always remembered the stunt with the collapsing um, balcony or whatever that is that's on fire I think it's a really nice stunt and I know it's it's not Shawnee Smith and Candace Cameron falling through the fire in that but it's really nicely nicely done and it's a nicely it's a nicely played closing stunt and so overall, I, I really like it. I um I, I I think I think it's a really I, I like I, um I, I think it's a really sharply uh, put together f- uh, film. I'm a big uh, I'm a big fan. Who who uh, who isn't though of uh, the director? Okay. Whose name is it? Fred Walton? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Why did I forget his name for a second? Um, but I'm a big I'm a big fan of his, and um, I just think it's a, and and the synthesizer score is great in it. And yeah. it's just it's it feels like because I think I May May twentieth, nineteen eighty eight was when I was just beginning to um not be afraid of the dark anymore. Now I know what you're saying, uh, you know, Dan, you were fifteen, you wuss <laughs> and you want to come over and punch me. But yeah, hey, hey, we all we all deal no with judgment. the dark in our own ways. <laughs> yeah, so 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 at that time I would have watched I saw I I, I I saw what you did because I think um I would have known since it was a TV movie, it wouldn't go to a place like yeah. you know if I you know if I recorded Return of the Living Dead on HBO at three in the morning, you know that may have gone to a few places where I wasn't ready to to wander into. But I think I saw what you did. Not it, it, it's I don't think it's a, a safe film, as in like you could show your grandma, because I think there there's a lot of there are violent moments and there are fairly creepy almost scary moments and there there are there are great bits in it but i think um i think yeah overall it's 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 a sharp film and it it it's um it's definitely worth watching i think it's it's got um it it's got something um that i've always thought there's a moment where um uh steven david carradine is like entering a room and adrian robert carradine or is it the other way around oh, doesn't matter Okay, is he's in there and all and and Stephen doesn't see him and he goes like, "Oh, you startled me!" And I actually have written down here that's called the Carradine startle. <laughs> that used to happen in the in the Carradine house about once every hour. One of the Carradines would scare the hell out of the other one just by walking into a it room. It was it was normally Keith Carradine though. <laughs> yes, yeah. Sometimes John would do it too, but it was like I I love the fact that it's like you know it's like growing up like Lon Chaney Senior and Junior. They probably you know for a time scared the hell out of each other just walking into a room to ask, do you have a bagel? You know, do you have? Ah. Can, I, can I borrow a towel? Ah. Ah, you startled you startled me. I didn't mean to. I'm you know I'm I'm you know Keith Carradine, and just walking into a room, I startled my brothers. 
It happens. That's the way it happens. Yes. Security so, Journal, so, so, famous. Yeah, so so I I quite enjoyed it. I I I think you may have too, but I don't want to judge or or presume. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love this movie. <clears throat> it's one of the best of the '80s, as far as I'm concerned, um, for a number of reasons. One, because it is a legit, like creepy film. Also, it's like I said earlier, it's just really beautifully shot. It has a very cinematic quality to it. It's very of its time. It looks very late '80s in all the right ways. Um, but I think. What stands out to me the most about this movie is that Shawnee Smith and Tammy Lauren's friendship is really amazing the way it builds throughout the film because they start off not really knowing each other very well. And I think Tammy Lauren's character is actually kind of taken aback when uh, Shawnee Smith invites her over to the house. And she only goes over there because it's a ploy to see her boyfriend later, right? So Tammy Lauren can see this yeah. guy that she's kind of not supposed to be seeing or whatever. And But we we forgot to mention the boyfriend whose car she borrowed in Crime of Innocence was 23 and she was 16. That's right, yes. Yeah, that's yes. pretty upsetting. Okay, so <laughs> yes, here I think he's just yeah. a high school kid. But So she goes over completely with ulterior motives. And Shawnee Smith is, I think, this new person in town who's like kind of awkward. And a really, really great friendship develops throughout the film, so much so that she helps her at the end. You know, Tammy Lauren ends up sort of, you know, coming to her rescue. And so, like, I love the way that develops because it's so organic and yes. real and fun. And, and and because the relationship is growing in front of our eyes, we come to really like these characters. And we have a lot invested in it, even though they're fucking crank phone callers. Nobody likes those people. <laughs> I did it. Nobody likes no, me. I... Nobody likes me. And so, like, do you know what I mean? And... Do you have a? Did you have a favorite you used to do? Well, since my parents are no longer here because they would be horrified if they heard the stuff that I did. By the way, I stole a car too when I was a teenager. Um, so this is Amanda. Amanda admits. Yeah, and I meant to mention that in Crime of Innocence. But uh, what I used to do <laughs> is my friend and I. We had no other friends. We just had each other. We were very nerdy, geeky, awkward, ridiculous teenagers and we would call numbers and if the guy sounded cute we would ask for somebody and then they would always say oh that person doesn't live here and then we would have a conversation with that person and then we would make arrangements to meet them and we've done it we did it several times um wow. and we didn't get murdered yeah and i wouldn't recommend people do that <laughs> but we did because we were like 15 or 16 or 17 and we didn't know any better, and we were lucky enough to only meet people who weren't horrible, but were curious enough to come meet us. And I dated one guy. I don't know if that's exactly how I met him. I did meet him over the phone. I don't think I crank phone called him, but I think I'm, I crank phone called somebody else who introduced me to him because I struck up a friendship with somebody I crank phone called. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I know it sounds weird. I have a very non-conventional <laughs> life. It's always been like that, always. <laughs> And so um, I think that's what happened. And and there was a third <laughs> friend involved at the time, and he was. We would talk on um, the party line, whatever that was called. And um, yeah, and so there would be right, like yeah. four people on the phone together. And he, I can't remember his name, but he was much older than us. I was seventeen, and he was twenty-five. Uh-huh. And he, 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 the three of us went. Well, he met the one girl, one of the third girl who joined us. She was. Very aggressive, and so he asked her out on a date. He took her, he picked her up. I don't think they had a very good time, and he took her home. And he called us back, and he asked if he could meet me and my friend separately and just hang out without no dating involved. So he picked us up, and then he dropped my friend off first. And then on the way home, he asked me out. I don't know how 
I didn't get murdered. And he took me to go see a fish called Wanda. Oh, that's thing. nice. Yeah, we had a good oh, time. But uh, he was so much older than me. That's a freaking film. Yeah. And every time he moved in to kiss me, I would get really nervous. So like three dates in, he was like, I can't do this. This is not. Did you start to stutter like Michael Palin in the, yeah. uh, in the film? <laughs> I don't like people because they were sh- 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 shit on you. Shove off. Yeah, yeah, just like yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. And um yeah, yeah. And so we went on like three dates, but anyway, so I did do all of this except I never picked up a murderer luckily. The, my my fish called well, I have a fish called Wanda oh. story which involves me doing something that I shouldn't have, but it was just um I couldn't get anyone over 17 to take me, so myself and my cousin, we were both under 17, snuck in. Oh. And watched it. That's the whole story. That's good, it's though. not a good story. No, it's a good story. And we did it was great, and it was great because the movie began, and then about a minute in, an usher came down and was shining lights on everyone, and for some reason, it didn't throw me out. Now, about a year later, or maybe it was the same year, I snuck into Phantasm 2 and got embarrassed by being thrown out and ended up having to see the Care Bear movies to a new generation. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was so dying to see Phantasm 2. And that's why I think I think I think what happened is you know like of the Phantasm movies that's the one's the trickiest one to get like the rights to right, or right, whatever. Right. I think it has something to do with the fact that I got thrown out. I threw a hex on well, that movie. How was the Care Bears movie though? Oh, it was fun. I'd seen the first one with my friend John a year or two later, and then we did a double feature of that in Amadeus. Oh, sure. And that was fun. Sure. And but 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 I um I specifically you know I was like I feel I feel like Care Bears movie two isn't going to give as much back to me as Phantasm <laughs> two might. Maybe it did. I honestly don't I, know. I don't know. It's possible. It's possible. It's possible. Yeah. Possible. No, I got kicked out of the movies once. I think I tried to sneak in to go see the movie with. Dudley Moore, where he switches bodies with a teenager. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forget the title, but yeah, it was one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I got kicked yeah, out of that. They, once I got kicked out of Phantasm 2, I was much more, um, uh, much, uh, it, it, before that, you just, I just walk in, sit down and watch a movie. But after that point, I became much more, um, worried whenever I snuck into like a rated R film and then when I was 17 of course I just strolled in and flip off the ushers and say get the hell out of here that's right I'm going to see my movie I'm here legally I'm I'm here I'm here for Halloween 5 (laughs) and you you got nothing to say about that yeah I don't remember really seeing a lot of rated R movies even at 17 I had my friend was um, the one I would do crank phone calls with she loved horror movies and she kind of got me into them but they were still really scary to me like they they were exciting for her but they were terrifying for me like we watched Nightmare on Elm Street together and I, I couldn't sleep for like three days um, I and I was like 16 I, I, yeah I was um, I was uh, 13 when my stepdad and my sister who was 11 watched it and I left the room I forget. I think I, I, I made up an excuse. I got to do homework. I was just too scared. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely like that. And so, but we did go see Hellraiser together, which blew my mind. Oh, fun! Yeah, that was yeah. crazy to see on the on the big screen when we were the only girls in the theater, of course. And it was oh, a wow. midnight screening, and so and we saw one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets on the big screen together. It was the third one, and we saw no, the fourth one, and we saw Prince of Darkness together. Oh. Um, yeah, so really good movies, but like they were terrifying mm-hmm. to me at the time. So like they, it was just even though Nightmare on Elm Street Four is really fun, it mm-hmm. at that age it was still hard for me to sort of separate yeah. it, you know, the humor and yeah. the horror. So, but anyway, mm-hmm. 
So, so that's anyway. why I saw what you did was so appealing to me because I was such a chicken mm-hmm. shit, right? So, like, <laughs> I was like, oh, this will be a fun and it's exciting and it's got suspense, but it, I know it's not going to get like too bloody or too too gory or scary for me, you know. And so that was the beauty of those TV movies in that era because it was like my gateway. But um, this one I was especially uh, drawn to because of the two female leads and their and that female friendship aspect, which I'm stuck on even to this day. I, I've watched a lot of horror movies for that. But um, it's really good, and it's really well put together, like you said. I think you kind of said it you pretty concisely. It's kind of a hard movie to talk about because it is so good. Like, mm-hmm. like there's nothing for me personally to pick apart from it because – to me, it's not a perfect film. I don't know if there's such a thing as a perfect film, but as far as TV movies from this era go, especially genre movies, it, it's cream crop. It's it's mm-hmm. doing exactly what it needs. So to sharp, do. yeah. It's just yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's so fun. Just even the beginning when they're making the phone calls before it's up to Adrian, you know. Yeah, it's <laughs> yes. just those are great. great calls. Great calls. Yeah. Yeah, it's just everything is about the movie is so much fun, and it, it keeps it maintains its level of suspense and excitement throughout the entire film. It makes sense at the end when she gets revealed as the woman called Adrian because she calls uh, her friend or she makes a fake phone call or something like that and she says his name. Do you remember that on the phone? She says, yes. oh, I'm at Adrian's. And then he, he's like, how do you even know who I am? And so he puts the two together. Like, it's very clever. And, yeah. Yeah. and then when he's at her house, there's that really great moment at the end when he shows up at her house and he realizes that she has no idea who he really is and he lets her go. And yes. And you think he's gone. Yeah, that's pretty stout again. Yeah, 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 like he's just going to leave. But then the phone rings, and he sticks around to listen to the call. Now, maybe he just it was faking her out and was going to kill her and was doing a whole thing so she would let her guard down. But it seems to me like he left and was intending to go, but then the phone rings. And then she is immature, naive, naive enough not to pretend like it's the pizza guy saying the pizza's coming late. And she's like, Adrian was just here. She says it really loud when Cammy Lauren calls. Yes. He's dead. And he was yes. the killer of this woman. And she's like, no, no, no. He was here. I just totally talked mm. to him. And then he's, yeah. of course, on the other side of the door. And then, oh, you know, hell has to break loose. But, like, um, yes. it's just so uh, it's just so good. It's so entertaining to me. Um, there's so yeah. It's so fun. And I love when um, uh, when the boyfriend, Tammy Lauren's boyfriend, shows up. Yes, and she's yeah. just, she has to choose between her new friend and this guy, and like the, the, like back and forth she has with her boyfriend. Like what she says to him isn't even that. Like I don't remember the insult, but she insults him, and then everybody's like ooh, and you're like it's not even that bad, guys. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. But it was 1988. Yeah. We didn't know better. Yes, we didn't have the mm-hmm. internet to look up and the there, way. Like yes. That. And there, there is a nice feeling too of the the difference between the farmhouse, which I I don't imagine is is that far away from like the city, but there is enough of of space in between like the the apartment or the or Adrian's house or space and like the farmhouse that it just it 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 it, it um I th- I think it's nice because sometimes it's nice to know what the uh, location-wise, where you are, you know, like, I can get there in 10 minutes, I, you know, something like that. But sometimes it's nice, too, to have kind of it be more nebulous. And I think it, I think it works in this movie. And, well, it's such an L.A. film, isn't it? Because L.A. does have, yeah. like, vast terrain in the city because yes. it's really not like New York or any other city I've ever been to. It's like a flat piece of land. It goes on and, on and on and on. And it's split up mostly by suburbs with some urban mm-hmm. stuff in there. And downtown, of yes. course, but a lot of it is really like the valley and 
Yes. Everything over there in North Hollywood and that side of the hill is very like you do go into like these like crazy places in the hills that look like they yes. belong in the Midwest or something. They see these really sprawling yeah, places. The- yeah, that one when I used to uh, that that year of my life where I did extra work, they would send you to locations, and you'd be like, and you'd be driving there and, and thinking, okay, where am I going? And then suddenly you're like, where am I? You know, you'd be in like this is like <laughs> you like I think I I'm in about twelve different movies that I can think of right now, and I thought they were all set in Illinois or something like that. You know, yeah. you just there are all these different places right around where I am that you can go to you just got to find them and sometimes the way you find them is you get lost but that was only when I first moved out here but um, but yeah there's so many places you can go on that that farmhouse looks like it looks like a mix of just like a, a like a beautiful place in the middle of nowhere and like a wonderful spot off of like Stevenson Ranch you know up the 405 or the 101 or something like that yeah, so, yeah it's, like, it's a nice spot yeah or like it could be in Malibu like I don't know if that's what it's yes it's yes like. But it has like a, Could be, yeah. a feel to it, and so it does. And I like that aspect of it too. It does feel like now that I've lived in LA, I can say it feels like a very LA film without trying to be an LA film. You know, like clearly mm-hmm. he works in film and stuff, and so we know that's where it's set. But it really does capture yeah. like just how vast yeah. the valleys are, and so it's it's just Fred Walton did a great job putting this together. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's, yeah. it's fantastic. Um, and I don't mm-hmm. know what there is to really say about it though. That's the problem. I, <laughs> Um, you know what? You know what? I want to bring up a, a thing I didn't realize was a trope, but then I suddenly. Well, I, I'm going to bring up one actor who's in it now. Oh, I'll wait. I'll wait on the actor until you get to um, the background, and then if you bring the actor up, I like to mention the, them. Um, but there is a. Oh, well, now I gave the actor away because I'm going to say what the scene is. But I'm not going to say who the actor is. Y'all, we'll do that later. But um, there's a trope that I didn't realize was a trope in movies like this, but it is the scene with women in some sort of poetry class or literature class where the teacher asks them a question, and a lot of times, like, one person doesn't know it, but our, like, final okay, yeah. girl, as it were, knows it perfectly. Yeah. Halloween and offerings, which is Halloween without the scares, but still super fun. But both of these movies have a scene in them where we're in a class, and I think it's uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning is who comes up in, in Crime of Innocence, and in this one, I forget who they're talking about, but the same thing happens. There's a scene where they're asked about... Um, you know, some some sort of uh, classical literature, poetry, and, and they have to respond. Is it, is it, I, I'm surprised, like, when I saw this, the, almost the same scene in both movies, I thought, wow, that's weird. That's that that's that's um, that's a trope I'd never really thought <laughs> of because because when Offerings does it, it's clearly ripping off Halloween. Which I love about offerings. I don't. You don't think when you're watching offerings. You just watch, and yeah. it is. Um, but but when, you know, and Halloween does it too. And I'm sure there are a few more movies. Yeah, I was where, gonna say there's a scene that. like that in Are You in the House Alone, where the uh, Kathleen Beller's character is in a poetry class, and I feel like she does get called on. I can't remember now to talk about um, the poem, but I a lot of times. I like to look at what they're talking about. Like, what is the subtext Mm. of the poem giving us some kind of foreshadowing? So I don't remember if it's poetry in Halloween, but the whole thing is that they're talking about fate, right? And that no matter what they would have done 
their fate was going to intervene and there's nothing that they could do about it. And that kind of telegraphs how the film's, because it's so random, right, that this guy just shows mm-hmm. up at yes, their house yeah. and kills them before we find out that he's her brother, right, in this film. Yeah, and I think if I remember correctly, in Offerings, they're reading John Carpenter, Deborah Hill's script for Halloween, <laughs> and they're discussing that scene. No, I'm, I, I don't remember what but, it is uh, in Offerings. But like but... a lot of times, the, the what they're talking about in class is actually like telegraphing, and I don't think I paid enough attention yeah. in either of these films, and now I wish I had. I didn't either, yeah. I do I feel like feel... in Are You in the House Alone, I looked it up, and now I can't remember what the poem was, but I did I did research <laughs> it. Um, but like, uh, yeah, a lot of times they're in their purpose because they're reading something. And you mentioned it too. One of the TV movies we covered did that thing where you talk about where they show the gun so you know the gun's going to come on later and that's a check off. What did you call that? Yeah, the... the famous- it's it's the check off. It's the uh, it's like the the um yeah if you if you show the gun and the fireplace, you know in the first act you're going to use the gun in the third act. Yeah, and so kind of thing. We talked about a TV movie here where they are talking about check off. And mm. you pointed out that because they used that trope in the movie, that it was really huh. clever of them to actually talk about Chekhov. So it might have been like, it's a movie with class and scene and offhand. I couldn't tell you what that was. But I know we covered Trilogy mm. of Terror with the succubus, but that doesn't sound right. So, uh, And I know it's no. not High School USA, so I can't re- no, no. <laughs> so I can't figure out what that was. But I remember you talking oh, about right. that it was yeah. clever that they did that. And so, um, so anyway. Uh, what was that? Yeah. yeah, so so I always find that, that when they are talking about things in classrooms or having conversations about other forms of literature, that I I, mm-hmm. I try to pay attention, but for whatever reason I didn't this time, and I dropped the ball. And, and they did it twice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, stupid. Oh uh, well, that, no, no, it wasn't. Uh, it was you know I I just wrote down. Oh, they're doing it again. So I should have maybe listened to what they were doing. Rather than yeah. being excited about, oh damn, look, they did they did that again. Oh, hey everybody, we're doing that again. Um, the uh, I yeah, I can't. I the the thing with I saw I, I I saw what you did is that I think it's it's like I said, it's a very sharp, well done TV movie that I think. If you, you you sit down, maybe get something nice for dinner, maybe a glass of wine. You're gonna have a you're gonna have a, a great 92 minutes. Watch it in a nice print if you if you can find it. This is probably something that should come out on um, uh, uh, Blu-ray, I would think. Oh, I um, wish it would. I think that would be great because it, it, as far as I can say, I mean, it's shot on film, and as far as I can tell, it looks like it was edited on film. It has what I call a Nightmare Weekend credit fonts. There, there's a film called Nightmare Weekend with a little robot named George, a hand puppet robot named George, and it has the exact same fonts for the opening credits as this movie. Okay. Well, which one influenced so, which one is my question. That's true. That's true. That's true. I, I don't because I sat there watching this. Um, the third time I watched this for this uh, recording was uh, just a few hours ago. And as I was sitting watching it, just I wanted to take down some names in the credits. I actually didn't, and I just wrote Nightmare Weekend, which means that I need to do better when I take notes. But it also <laughs> means that um, I, I, I feel like this was probably all done on film. So why we don't get a lovely Blu-ray of it with like a it, with like a commentary from the two the two gals and Fred Walton? Oh, and the oh. writer. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that would be great. Yes. Yeah. This. Oh wow. This is a- 
of of all the TV movies, like this is in my top ten. I think of, I would love to see because it's so beautifully filmed. Like it's just it's yes. got a real cinematic quality to it. It's mm-hmm. it's just uh, the colors are really interesting because um, it's all done at night. Like eighty percent or ninety percent of the movie is shot at night, and and it's neon lit, but it's got these really striking color schemes throughout the film and it's just it's just just needs another audience you know what i mean it, it deserves yes, better yeah, it, than crappy it, youtube upload it has yes and and you you know that if they if they put it out on a blu-ray whatever company did it everyone would do what everyone does right now with blu-rays they'd absolutely fall in love with it i think so so, so no no matter what we put out that's the one one of the great things about right now with like Blu-rays and such, is that you put stuff out, people fall in love with everything. And I think this would be a great, great one because you get a lot of people saying, oh, I saw it when it first aired, or oh, I love the original, I want to see this. I think that, I think this needs, if anyone's listening who can release this, do do so now. Yes, please. Thank you. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, I would love it. It would be a, such a treat, um, especially with the commentary with the filmmakers that are involved, because yes. um, especially Shawnee Smith and Tammy Lauren, because they seem to have a real chemistry together. And I did find mm-hmm. an interview with Tammy Lauren that she did not that long ago, where she said that she had a great time making uh, this movie because of Shawnee and because of the Carradines. And she mentioned making another movie with Shawnee Smith prior to this one. And I just think that it would be really fun to hear them talk about their memories of it. It makes me think it wouldn't be as, it would be different. But you know, the uh, Sleepaway Camp commentary is great Mm -hmm. because Felicity Rose was just very young when she made that film, but it's literally the sleaziest movie ever made. And the (laughs) memories of it are the memories of a child, right? And so when she does the commentary, it's great because she's watching it like, Oh, when I was 12, we had such a good time, and blah, blah, blah. And there's this really great part where they show the cook for the first time, the pedophile. And and, yes. he, and she's talking about the actor, and she says, you know, what I remember about him was he was he read a lot. He was really literate. And it was just hilarious because he's like, like a fucking pedophile. He's talking about baldies. Like, it's very offensive. And, yes. and, like, and like her memory goes, he's a sweet guy. And she's talking about it, like, from the memories of a child. And it's, fab- it's fabulous. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to hear these two yes. girls talk about making this movie i'm sure it was a lot of fun and we would hear the fun aspects of it you know um but i think i'll just go into the background um and then we'll talk about that actor because i actually can't remember who you're talking about so um and it's (laughs) killing me why i'm drawing a total blank now but and so this movie originally aired on cbs on may 20th 1988 uh the day after you turn 15 day before day before Day before you turn 15 very big day um it was scheduled as part of may sweeps they put me sweeps together because of your birthday so they try to make may really big for you to celebrate your birthday so other <laughs> titles that aired during may sweeps were the born identity tv movie return of the incredible hulk and the magnum pi two-hour oh. finale which i put in parentheses is excellent oh. excellent yeah. and everybody should yeah, see it yeah. it didn't do terrific in the ratings um it got 11.5 slash 21 it came in at number 32 for the week uh rambo um, which it ran against on NBC got a 12.5 slash 22 wow. and came in at a higher 27. So overall, this movie ranked at 185 for the 1987-1988 season out of all the TV movies that aired. So that's pretty far down the list. It did rerun on April 23, 1991 with a 9.3 slash 16. So as I said, it ran against Rambo on Rambo First Blood Part 2, I'm sorry, on NBC. <laughs> on ABC, it ran against, this must have been what you were watching. Dan, Mr. Belvedere and I Married Dora and 2020. 
Was that what you were watching? You know, I, maybe I was just watching something on cable or something. I Married Dora, forgive me if I'm wrong, is the um, the great sitcom where the guy marries the woman so she can, like, get... he she He's, like, her maid. Yeah. And, and he marries her so he can get her green or something like that. Yeah. And the, 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 and the show got... Ca- yeah, the last episode after thirteen episodes, they got canceled, and the the dad or whatever is leaving. He's leaving his three kids behind with Dora, and he basically says, "Bye, everyone. I'm going to the other side of the world for a new job." He leaves, comes back a second later, and says, "Oh, I'm not going. Why? Because our show got canceled." And they all kind of wave to the crowd yeah. and the show. Ends. I think he said, "I think he said uh, it's been canceled," and they're like, "The flight," and he's like, "No, the show." The yeah, show, yes. and it was yeah. one of the first meta moments on TV that people can remember. You yes. know, where like the fourth yeah. wall comes down, and like yeah. it's in the era of it's the Gary Shandling show, right? So like, yes, all right that kind of self aware yeah. stuff yeah. started happening. Yeah, yeah. I, so I must have been watching something on cable because I wasn't watching any of those because I would have watched Rambo on on VHS or yeah. on HBO or Showtime or something. And Mr. Belvedere was not for me. I was obsessed with I'm Dora because Juliette Lewis was on it and oh, yeah. I didn't really know who she was at the time she wasn't famous but I wanted to be her she plays this kind of like really I don't know if it's an airhead there's something about her performance that's really fascinating to mm-hmm. me in that and I was obsessed with her and I wanted to be her and so I watched yes. I'm Mary, I watched all 13 episodes because I just was so in love wow. with her yeah I still love Juliette Lewis she's still well you know I was going to say, I have a short-lived TV show podcast, and uh, you know I'm always looking for shows to talk about. Well, then there's one right there. I mean, I don't remember <laughs> how good the show is, but I remember being obsessed with Juliette Lewis. And, I, of course, I loved Elizabeth Pena, who plays Dora. But, uh, uh, yes, but I, yeah. She's yeah. so good in Jacob's Ladder. Oh, my God. But, like, yes. Um, oh, yes. but for me, that was my introduction to Juliette Lewis, and I was not looking back. And I say that, but, you know, I, I, I maybe I didn't watch it, because I remember watching this on the night it originally aired. So maybe I taped I Married Dora. And watch later because I'm positive I've seen every episode of that show. But um, anyway, uh, anyway, I was looking through newspaper archives to get some trivia about the show, and I saw that at the time that this originally aired in 1988, is it that uh, the original I saw what you did was still playing a lot on local stations around the country. So it was still a pretty competent film, and you could watch it pretty easily back then. It did get a home video release in the UK, and as I said, it being part of May Sweeps, it was. I Saw What You Did was also part of a $60 million budgeted blitz from CBS to produce 25 TV movies in the 1987-1988 season. The bulk of these uh, films were shot in L.A., like I Saw What You Did, but it was expansive. Some films were shot in London and also Australia. Um, I like how I put London as like it's a country, but it is to me. It's its own kind of thing. Um, uh, a lot of I Saw What You Did was actually shot on the Universal Backlot. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Other yeah. titles that CBS had as part of this uh, bonanza filmmaking thing they were doing was The Mayflower Madam, A Hobo's Christmas, and Morning Song. Oh. And the only one I remember from that is Mayflower. Mayflower the, sorry, excuse me. The only one I remember from that is The Mayflower Madam. Um, as I said, Tammy Lauren had a really good experience working on this film. She loved working with the Carradine brothers and Shawnee Smith. And at this time, CBS and NBC were still producing a lot of TV movies, but ABC really only made a handful, which is interesting because they kind of made the movie a week of thing. But then they sort of dropped out of the mm-hmm. game at the end of the 80s. Um, so this movie went into production in the summer of 1987, possibly around early June, and newspapers reported it as an quote-unquote unofficial remake. That beautiful music that you hear throughout the film was composed by Dana Kaproff, 
who did a ton of TV movies, including The China Lake Murders, Dead Air, and The People Across the Lake, which is another oh, Tammy Lauren film. Um, yeah. And as we mentioned, it was directed by Fred Walton, who did When a Stranger Calls, and the TV movie sequel, When a Stranger Calls Back, which aired on Showtime, and mm-hmm. April Fool's Day, one of the best of those slasher Yes, yeah. yes. Fred Walton said in an interview, I'm not kidding when I say for about two weeks I was like Quentin Tarantino. So he had, he did, he was really famous for a while there. Yes, yeah. He fell in love with cinema actually by watching foreign cinema uh, in college. When he was in college, he met a man named Stephen Fake, I think it's F-E-K-E, Fake or Fake, and they he would go on to become his producing partner. So they worked a lot throughout the rest of Fred's, Fred's, uh, I like how I call him Fred, Freddie is uh retired now um and so speaking about making horror movies he said quote most of the scary movies that were made like uh, that were made like 98 percent of them involved gore or violence what i was proudest of in when a stranger calls was that we managed to get across all the scares with almost no on-screen violence playing on viewers dread and imagination which is much more powerful which is what i think makes him such a great director for tv because mm-hmm. you have to be yeah. restrained, and I think he did a really good job in this movie. Um, sort of copying the idea of the phone terror stuff, but doing it in a different way and, and bringing a different kind of... like. So the interesting thing about When a Stranger Calls is that Carol Kane is the young woman that bookends the films, but it's really about another woman calling do her straight through the middle portion of the film mm-hmm. and the killer, right? And so here he's like just concentrating on like the younger characters and so it's a different film doing kind of the same thing and he's really good and the sequel to When a Stranger Calls is phenomenal it's one of the best of the- yeah it's yeah it's really good yeah um, so Walton's wife BB was an actress as well she was on the Mod Squad at some point see also something Fred Walton said that I really liked was he said Walton's rule make movies for the audience not for yourself you really should make any sort of artwork primarily for the audience but don't talk down to them don't ever give them the cheesy scream or the cheesy laugh that's my philosophy respect the audience always 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 Cynthia I think I'm saying her last name last name right Cedra is best known for producing the Dallas I think so, yeah. Movie. Yeah, she made the new Dallas show that came out a few hey. Yeah, so good although a lot of Dallas fans had whatever with it but I don't understand why. Um, <laughs> this was her first produced film credit um, she would go on to write the Mambo Kings a couple years later which surprised me I didn't know she wrote that wow yeah uh, Robert Carradine um, around the time I saw what you did was shot there was actually a, hi- a hiatus on Revenge of the Nerds 3 because Anthony Edwards didn't care for the script imagine that not caring for the script for Revenge of the Nerds 3 <laughs> so and there was a looming writer strike so I think everything was on hold for that so he was able to make this film I think that's how he came to this movie um, and Robert and David Carradine appeared in several things together including Mean Streets Cannonball from 1976 and The Long Riders um, and of course we've already talked wow. about Robert uh, in Go Ask Alice. He has a small part in that. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful cinematography was by a man named Robert Omens, who really made some really great TVM. Uh, I wrote TVMs, but I meant TV movies here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wrote it in shorthand, but I, I have to say it not in shorthand. He wrote some impressive TV movies, including Why Me, which is a really, really good like face transplant movie. Um, he did an early frost, which is one of the first things ever to tackle AIDS in for mainstream audiences. Mm. And he also shot Police Woman Centerfold, which is one of my favorite TV movies. Oh, oh yeah. And he was course, the director yeah. of photography on the Magnum PI pilots. We've got a couple of Magnum uh, connections here. <laughs> and so uh, the reviews, I have a couple of reviews. Lynn Hefley, uh, well, so I should say the reviews were across the board here. Lynn Hefley of the LA Times wrote, CBS's tense 
Hitchcocky and I Saw What You Did is an artful roller coaster ride of a film. Tom Shales of the Washington Post said that it was handsome but meandering. He thought the cast was really good, especially the two young female leads. Shales made a joke about the lack of cable in the house, which he felt might have saved the girls from making those phone calls. They need a better <laughs> he said. Syndicated columnist John Burlingham said, I Saw What You Did was weak and gimmicky because he doesn't know what he's talking about Faye Zuckerman of the New York <laughs> Times uh, said that the ending was a stunner and it is we didn't talk about that twist ending we'll have to talk about that here in a second People Magazine gave it a B plus and said that it was just a little too long which uh, maybe so one thing we didn't talk about was after everything kind of meets its conclusion there's this really great sucker punch ending yes how are you feeling I'm okay is Julia in her she's asleep already I'm going to go in there and stay with her. Kim, why did you do it? It's, it's a fantastic ending. Um, I actually forgot for a brief second when I when I watched it uh, today. I forgot that his character was still alive. I don't know. I oh, must have looked the other him. way. Yeah, but but no, he he definitely he definitely is he's definitely not dead. But yeah, it's a great ending when you see basically the city and you hear her screaming. You think, oh, that's lovely. Yeah, that's so a nice good. nice ending. And then and then it cuts off, and you think she'll probably be okay. I don't I don't think he would. He's a respected businessman. I don't think he's but going he to go after her and try head. to kill her. He got hit on the head super hard. So who knows what happened? He 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 saw what I did. That would be the sequel. Like I know what you still did last summer. <laughs> I know what you did thirteen saw, summers ago, and I'm gonna. And that it would just get more confusing. He saw what I did. They saw what you were. I saw what you looked at, and it would just get more and more confusing with these. It sequels. would. It would. And David Carradine would be in all of them, and it would be a thing. <laughs> and then John would show up occasionally That's... and just startle. So everyone. now, of course, I'm thinking of things we didn't talk about. One of the things that also I really like about this film is Robert Carradine. I'm used to Robert Carradine being this kind of like hippie guy, like in Classroom New Massacre, or sure, in like yeah. The Van, or one of those movies that he was in. Like he's hey, what's up? You know. And if you listen to interviews with him. Very laid back, cool guy, and he's really demented in this. He's so good at yes. playing this like unhinged, mentally disturbed or emotionally disturbed, like killer. And and he's got this he, like I understand the appeal of him because of the Carradines, he's the most handsome, right? And so I could see the attraction to him. I could see like he makes interesting music. Like, he's different, he's artistic, but he's also, like, just creepy enough to give off that vibe to anybody really paying attention. So it's, like, a really quiet kind of performance. And he keeps, like, like that part where he goes to bury the body. Like, he has lots of problems, like, doing these things because they weren't, it wasn't a very well-planned-out crime. So, uh, so, like, 
getting it to the end was very difficult for him. You know what I mean? Like, I think he gets pulled over, right? Like, Get out of here, stuff. you yeah. dog. Yeah. yeah, and it's really well done. Like, and I love those parts with him. Yeah. And I love seeing his brother with him, too. And so that was something yes. I wanted to talk about yeah. the body of the film, but um, the body of our talk. But, yeah, he's really good in it. So, anyway, it's a it's a really good movie. We, we highly recommend it. And uh-huh. and we got a little feedback. Um, on All the- right. Sure. Oh, may, oh, may, yeah, yeah, I, may I mention the, the actor? So the actor's name is Bo Brunden. And he, I, I think it's Brunden. Um, uh, I've never said his name out loud. Um, that's the first, first time. So Bo Brunden, he was in a ton of stuff. He was Swedish. And you can always, he has a very, um, whenever he's speaking English, he has a very sort of specific way he kind of speaks. And he, yeah. to me, he is known for starring in a movie, and I and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say this because um I I never quite uh I never quite figured out exactly the the director of this I believe is yes okay so he is in a film from 1971 called The Headless Eyes oh. which you may have which you may have seen if you went to the drive-in in the 70s it was on a double feature with Andy Milligan's The Gasly, Gasly Ones. He plays the killer in the headless eyes. My eye, my eye, over and oh, over again. Justin and Bateman the headless... and Jason Bateman's dad. Ken, Ken, the director of the headless eyes is oh, Ken Bateman, who is Justine and is Justine and Jason's um, dad, and Bo Brunden, who you see him in the headless eyes, and it's a gory, sleazy film, but. A lot like Andy Milligan films, on occasion when like other actors show up, they almost go kind of Shakespearean yeah. for moments, and it's really weird. And you think that guy was never in anything else? Well, no, he was in an episode of Manimal, <gasps> and I believe it may have been written by Bergen Schwartz. I'm going to have to double check that. Oh my god! But he w- he was in a lot of stuff, and when he shows up in this, it- it's funny. I didn't even see his face; I just heard his voice. And I sat there going, I know that I'm, voice. I know I'm that so, voice. I'm so glad you brought that up because I'll tell you who he, uh, who I thought he was. Because I heard mm. his voice too before I saw him. And I thought, is that T.G. Finkbinder from Class Reunion Massacre? <laughs> oh, that would have been great. I literally thought that. Uh, and when they showed him, I thought, could that be him? Could that be that, him? Yeah, so many, uh, we never really get to see him. Well, we do when he's the priest, yeah. I guess. But, uh, but that could be him. Yeah. That's, that's, that's... how he sounded like it did, but then the accent got thicker. And I thought, oh, mm. no, that doesn't quite sound yeah. like him. But it, there's something about the, the performance that yeah. makes yes. me yeah. I'm so glad they're you brought the, that up. That's hilarious. That's right. The same world, yeah, kind so, of. Yeah, so yeah. I was but, on the right track. I was thinking of like crazy you, 74 you, movies, but yeah. I had the wrong one. You were right there. You know, and Finkbinder signed that four-picture deal for the Class Reunion <laughs> Massacre series that never happened. We used to I would have been there. Yeah, yeah. and he—he he, yeah, he said, "My earthly wards." Yes, that's right. Yeah. And uh, I need to watch that again. That's a Stat. Film. That's a great film. Um, <laughs> great so film. here's our feedback um, on Instagram. Oh. We heard from Ara J McReady. He said, nice. I really enjoyed the remake of I Saw What You Did. Gotta love that cast. I could have sworn I've seen Crime of Innocence, but I'm drawing a blank. Looks like I've got some homework to do. And then I never heard from him again. Um, and then on Facebook was Brian Wolford, who wrote, yay, we just did this movie along with the 1965 original over at the Midnight Drive-In podcast, so everybody should check that out. I just saw that today, so I haven't had a chance to listen to it. 
But I would like to revisit the original, so that might be a fun uh, way to get back into it. Um, Jack R. Demis, I hope I said that right, um, also on Facebook said, Andy Griffith was a real SOB in many of his TV movies, which is correct. (laughs) And then on Twitter, my good friend Jeffrey Henry said, terrific. I'm really looking forward to hearing this episode. It will bring back memories for me. I watched I Saw What You Did With My Family on the night of its original broadcast. Wow. Yeah. So there was a lot of us watching that night. Um, that was a thing. Mm-hmm. And that's all our feedback. Um, so let me go ahead and tell you real quick what our next episode's going to be. And then I guess we'll do our shameless self-promotion, which I don't have much. So this this last part will be, <laughs> will be painless. But so Dan and I recently did um, the commentary for a movie coming out called Night Terror. I can't remember when that's getting released, but that's the Valerie Harper movie that is... End of June, end of June. I think, right? I can't remember the release date, but... But we recorded it recently, and one of the things we did was we watched a couple movies that made us think of Night Terror, and one of them was ironically called Night of Terror, which came out in 1972, and it stars Donna Mills, and I believe, is it Martin Balsam? Who's the male? Yes, and I believe so. And Chuck yeah. Connors, yeah. and it's a really, really, really little film that has kind of a big impact. There's something about it that's really yeah. delightful and wonderful, and it's also yeah. a very, really yeah. good suspense thriller. And so I thought, well, why don't we cover that? Because I don't remember if we talked about it when we did the commentary, but it was a movie we were both quite taken with um, when we watched mm-hmm. it for to prep. And I thought, let's do this one, because it's a movie maybe a lot of people haven't seen, and it, sh- it deserves a bigger audience. And so I thought, well, what can I tie that with? Well, it does start Donna Mills, and Donna Mills has been in a shitload of TV movies, and I thought we could do that. But I saw that the director was too, and who did yes. a lot of TV movies, including The Devil's Daughter. But I decided not to do that one, and I decided to pick another lesser-known TV movie called You'll Never See Me Again with David Hartman and um, Jess Walton. I can't remember who the other. There's a really big actor, I think, in that one. And I thought that'll be fun because we'll go right back to the heart of the ABC movie of the week. I think one of those was, or maybe both of them were. And we will talk about some classic TV movies that don't get talked about a lot. So that's our next episode, Night of Terror, and you'll never see me again. And it will be a tribute to the great. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it'll be a tribute to the great Shinoza work. And um, yeah. And if you want to write to us about either of those films or any of the Shinoza work films, and you can look them up. He did. Um, a Summer Without Boys, which I almost picked, but I might do that when we're in the summer, which is a drama written by Rita Lake. And he did a lot of really neat TV movies. Um, so if you want to write to us about him, you can contact us on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast. You can contact us on Instagram at Made for TV Mayhem. You can look us up on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show. Or you can email us at TV Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com. And we're really looking forward to having you come and join us for that one. I don't know if Joe will be able to join us or we'll have another cast but either way we'll be back as soon as we can um and i guess the big announcement was that dan and i did the commentary tonight terror i didn't mention that yet um really excited about that because that's a super great film that i've loved for my entire life uh so good and i had a lot of fun recording that with dan and we're excited about it nate couldn't join us so it's sort of like two-thirds of the made for tv mayhem show yeah it was intended to be all of us but you know life gets in the way um and also, I guess the other thing that happened between our last recording and this is that it was announced that Justin Kurzweil and I did the commentary for Eyes of a Stranger, oh, which is yeah. a, like a slasher sort of film with Lauren Tweez from Love Boat. And um, it's a movie that I love. And I'm not actually sure when that's coming out either, but you can look that up as Screen Factory is releasing it. I'm really excited to be a part of that film because it's, 
a really fascinating movie and because I'm also a big Lauren Thomas mm. fan and I don't remember gushing about her as much as I wanted to on the commentary. So <laughs> I might find another venue for that somewhere, but she's fantastic in it. So that's what I have that's been announced that I think I haven't mentioned previously. So, um, Dan, what's going on with you? Uh, well, hopefully um, by the summer, my third book will be out. It's coming out through <laughs> through a small uh, publisher in Minnesota. Uh, it's uh, but it's going to be available sort of like on Amazon, like you know you you purchase it and they print you a copy and send you one and it's fresh and hot and it's like a roll that you but you don't eat it or put butter on it. You you spend hours reading it. And this is my Henningverse book, and it's uh, where I'm, I'm almost there. I'm like those last couple steps are always a pain in the butt. But so hopefully within the next, by end of June, July 4th, uh, that will be out. And then, um, oh, I just, uh, something I, I started a few weeks ago, and I just want to mention it, because I do these occasional minute-by-minute podcasts, and for some reason, five weeks ago, I started doing three of them at once. Okay. So I am, I, I am doing, uh, and as we're recording this, the day after recording this, I will put up episode five for all three of them. But I'll just say all, real quick, they are 70s Friends of Frankenstein, which is Blackenstein and Frankenstein 80. Howling 2 and 7-2, which is discussing uh, Howling 2, uh, Your Sister is a Werewolf, and Howling New Moon Rising, and um, A Spooky Minute Spent in a Ghost House, which is discussing, disgusting, which is discussing Spookies and Ghost oh, House. Oh, man, Spookies. I just rewatched that. Yeah. Spookies so much fun. So, I mean, I love, I love Ghost House, because <laughs> any movie that references Simon Le Bon, hi. Yes. Please call me. But like, uh, but Spookies yeah. is like, it's so weird. I used to know an actor, and now I say that, but now I can't really? remember his name. Um, he passed away, but uh, he's in Spookies, and he was in a movie called Skin Deep by Gabe Bartolos. That's really crazy. Oh, and yeah, um, yeah. I don't even. I only knew him online. We were friendly on on Facebook, and he passed away several years ago. But he was a really sweet guy. But that's that's. Yeah, I, I was trying to decide the next one to do because the previous one I'd done was on Pieces. Last year I did pieces and pieces a minute by minute ish podcast and I couldn't decide which one to do so one weekend I recorded all three six film yeah yeah you know what I mean all three episodes for covering the six films and I actually asked people to pick one and all the responses I've had are they're great keep doing them and I'm trying to you know no I was trying to just pick one so I don't I'm, but so so I might do all three at awesome. once that's a it's 